Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. At this time, I want to welcome um, a special contributor, uh, the uh, granddaughter of uh, Yuri Kuchiyama, who we lost uh, this past year. Uh, She is in the graduate program at the uh, Graduate Center at CUNY as a cultural anthropologist. Uh, She is the co-coordinator of the Yuri Kuchiyama Archives Project and co-editor of Passing It On, a memoir by her grandmother. Please welcome to the stage, Akimi Kuchiyama. Hi, good evening. I want to begin by thanking Dr. Aisha Aldiwia and the Schomburg Center for inviting me here today um, and for the continued efforts of so many of the scholars and activists here to honor Malcolm's legacy and to deepen our understanding of his influence and his impact internationally. I also want to thank and acknowledge Sam Anderson, who is an old family friend and comrade of my grandma Yuri. In the public consciousness, Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X will forever be linked by the dramatic photograph that appeared in the March 5, 1965 issue of Life magazine, in which Yuri is seen cradling Malcolm's head moments after he was shot on stage at the Autobahn Ballroom. To many, the photo is in odd juxtaposition and raises questions. What did these two people have to do with each other? Why was she there? While some might find it hard to imagine how a married Japanese-American mother of six became a follower, student, and of Malcolm X, an understanding of my grandmother's experience in this country and where her personal and political beliefs and her passion for justice overlap with Malcolm's makes it easier to comprehend. My grandmother was born Mary Yuriko Nakahara and raised in Southern California in the 1920s. The children of first-generation Japanese-Americans, she enjoyed a relatively comfortable and normal American childhood and adolescence until her father, who was a successful commercial fisherman, was arrested at the onset of World War II. Along with many other Japanese-American community and business leaders residing on the West Coast at that time, my great-grandfather was unjustly accused of being a spy and incarcerated as a prisoner of war immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Having no evidence to charge him, he was released a few weeks later. He was emaciated and unable to speak. He died the next day. A few weeks later, Yuri's family was uprooted from their comfortable home and incarcerated, along with 120,000 Japanese-American citizens under Executive Order 9066, issued on February 19, 1942. 
Ironically, Yuri met her husband, my grandpa Bill, during World War II at an all-Japanese USO in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where Bill, who was a native New Yorker, was training at a segregated army base for black and Japanese soldiers only. Like many other Japanese Americans at the time, my grandfather was stunned by the American government's distrust of Japanese American citizens following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He enlisted in the army largely to prove his loyalty to America. Although my grandparents would not fully comprehend the racist implications of Executive Order 9066 until years later, their experiences during the war significantly impacted and informed a new sense of themselves as people of color in America as they began to build family and community in post-World War II Harlem. <clears throat> it was here in Harlem that my grandparents first got involved in the movement, initially through their membership in the Harlem Parents Committee and enrollment in the Harlem Freedom School. Yuri's education and involvement in these organizations led to her, her to participate in and support a wide range of community organizations, as well as African-American, Asian-American, and third world movements for civil and human rights, ethnic studies, and against the war in Vietnam. In 1963, she met Malcolm X, what she would later refer to as her political awakening. His friendship and influence radically changed her life and her political perspective. She joined his group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, to work for racial and human rights. Through her lessons at the OAAU's Liberation School and exchanges with Malcolm, Yuri's perspective became more radicalized and more international in scope, <clears throat> moving her to become passionately committed to black nationalist struggles in Africa and in the United States, to supporting Puerto Rican struggles for independence, to solidarity with Cuba, and countless other international liberation struggles. On June 6, 1964, Malcolm visited my grandparents' home in the Manhattanville Projects on West 126th Street upon her invitation to meet with three writers from the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Study Mission. They were on a world tour speaking against the proliferation of nuclear arms building. These writers were also Hibakusha, atomic bomb survivors, and wanted to meet Malcolm X more than any other person in America. They asked Yuri to request a meeting. Organized with the help of the Harlem Parents Committee, my grandparents' crowded apartment was packed to the brim with an international assembly of excited activists, artists, journalists, friends, and neighbors when Malcolm arrived. Gracious and warm toward everyone who approached him, my grandma told me that you could hear a pin drop when Malcolm began to speak. He talked about his time in prison, about the history of colonialism in Asia and Africa, about the People's Republic of China and his admiration for Mao Zedong, and then he spoke about Vietnam. For Yuri, one of the most memorable and important things he said that night was about Vietnam and the implications of American involvement there. In her memoir, she quotes him, if America sends troops to Vietnam, you progressives should protest. The struggle of Vietnam is the struggle of the whole third world, the struggle against colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. A few months later, Malcolm embarked on Hajj to, to Mecca. He sent my grandparents 11 postcards from nine countries over the course of that journey. I thought it would be appropriate to share excerpts from, from a few of them here today. From Kenya, he writes, 
Greetings from Kenya, the home of those great African patriots, the Mau Mau freedom fighters. From Egypt, he writes, greetings once again from the cradle of civilization where the recent African summit conference was a tremendous success. From Ethiopia, greetings from another ancient land that is fast leaping out of the past into the future. And from Kuwait, still trying to travel and broaden my scope since I've learned what a mess can be made by narrow-minded people. <laughs> Though she had only known Malcolm for 18 months by the time of his death, his friendship, example, and guidance had a profound influence on my grandmother, transforming her from a civil rights activist to a revolutionary anti-imperialist. After Mal Malcolm's violent assassination, Yuri, like so many of Malcolm's devoted followers, was devastated and, and angry. I'd like to share an excerpt from an article she wrote about Malcolm in 1965. It was published in the New York Nietzsche Bay a local Japanese-American newspaper. Denounced as a hater, it is enlightening to note that what Malcolm hated were tyranny, oppression, disenfranchisement, exploitation, enslavement, whether physical, mental, or psychological, race humiliation and stigmatizing, stultifying conditions and limited job opportunities, inferior education and substandard housing for his people, US economic and political aggression internationally, and the degrading of human lives. What he loved was carefully omitted from the white press. He loved humanity, the quality of being a human being. He loved dignity, the attribute of being esteemed. He loved justice, the principle of dealing justly. He loved freedom, the state of being free, the absence of restraint or repression. He loved life in its wholeness and beauty, unconfined and with passionate compassion. I know if Yuri were here today, she would be talking about the outrage we all share about the continued police brutality and aggressive U.S. foreign policy toward people of color. She would have aligned herself with the Black Lives Matter movement and connected these issues to the, the rights of all human beings, to dignity, respect, and self-determination. She would have been excited to see the broad response of multicultural communities and organizations across the country working together for justice right now in response to the police brutality in the cases of Eric Garner and Michael Brown and so many others. She would have been telling us to read and to know our history and to remember Malcolm. I think Malcolm's legacy and my grandmother's is most powerfully reflected in the diversity and the collective power of all of those who continue to fight on the front lines of social justice and freedom for all. Thank you context of white supremacy. Justice Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 5th, 2015. So I have been told. We will get started immediately. Autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley, we are on page, or excuse me, we are starting with chapter eight. Chapter eight, and the narrator is the legendary Earl Hyman. Chapter eight, Trapped. There was the knocking at the door. Sammy, lying on his bed in pajamas in a bathrobe, called, Who? When West Indian Archie answered, 
Sammy slid the round, two-sided shaving mirror under the bed with what little of the cocaine powder, or crystals, actually, was left, and I opened the door. Red, I want my money. A thirty-two twenty is a funny kind of gun. It's bigger than a thirty-two, but it's not as big as a thirty-eight. I had faced down some dangerous Negroes, but no one who wasn't ready to die messed with West Indian Archie. I couldn't believe it. He truly scared me. I was so incredulous at what was happening that it was hard to form words with my brain in my mouth. Man, what's the beef? West Indian Archie said he'd thought I was trying something when I told him I'd hit, but he paid me the $300 until he could double-check his written betting slips, and as he thought, I hadn't combinated the number I'd claimed, but another. Man, you're crazy. I talked fast. I'd seen out of the corner of my eye Sammy's hand easing under his pillow where he kept his army forty-five. Archie's smarter man as you're supposed to be. You'd pay somebody who hadn't hit. The thirty to twenty moved, and Sammy froze. West Indian Archie told him, I ought to shoot you through the ear. And he looked back at me. You don't have my money? I must have shaken my head. I'll give you until twelve o'clock tomorrow. And he put his hand behind him and pulled open the door. He backed out and slammed it. It was a classic hustler code impasse. The money wasn't the problem. I still had about $200 of it. Had money been the issue, Sammy could have made up the difference. If it wasn't in his pocket, his women could quickly have raised it. West Indian Archie himself, for that matter, would have loaned me $300 if I'd ever asked him as many thousands of dollars of mine as he'd gotten 10% of. Once, in fact, when he'd heard I was broke, he had looked me up and handed me some money and grunted, Stick this in your pocket. The issue was the position which his action had put us both into. For our hustler in our sidewalk jungle world... Face and honor were important. No hustler could have it known that he'd been hyped, meaning outsmarted or made a fool of. And worse, a hustler could never afford to have it demonstrated that he could be bluffed, that he could be frightened by a threat, that he lacked nerve. West Indian Archie knew that some young hustlers rose in stature in our world when they somehow hoodwinked older hustlers, then put it on the wire for everyone to hear. He believed I was trying that. In turn, I knew he would be protecting his stature by broadcasting all over the wire his threat to me. Because of this code, in my time in Harlem, I'd personally known a dozen hustlers who, threatened, left town, disgraced. Once the wire had it, any retreat by either of us was unthinkable. The wire would be awaiting the report of the showdown. I'd also known of at least another dozen showdowns in which one took the dead-on-arrival ride to the morgue and the other went to prison for manslaughter or the electric chair for murder. Sammy let me hold his thirty-two. My guns were at my apartment. I put the thirty-two in my pocket with my hand on it and walked out. I couldn't stay out of sight. I had to show up at all of my usual haunts. I was glad that Reginald was out of town. He might have tried protecting me, and I didn't want him shot in the head by West Indian Archie. I stood a while in the corner with my mind confused, the muddled thinking that's characteristic of the addict. Was West Indian Archie, I began to wonder, bluffing a hype on me? To make fun of me? Some old hustlers did love to hype younger ones. I knew he wouldn't do it as some would, just to pick up $300. But everyone was so slick. In this Harlem jungle, people would hype their brothers. Numbers runners often had hyped addicts who had hit, who were so drugged that when challenged, they really couldn't be sure if they played a certain number. I began to wonder whether West Indian Archie might not be right. Had I really gotten my combination confused? I certainly knew the two numbers I'd played. I knew I'd told him to combinate only one of them. 
had I gotten mixed up about which number? Have you ever been so sure you did something that you never would have thought of it again unless it was brought up again? Then you start trying to mentally confirm and you're only about half sure. It was just about time for me to go and pick up Gene Parks to go downtown to see Billy at the Onyx Club. So much was swirling in my head. I thought about telephoning her and calling it off, making some excuse. But I knew that running now was the worst thing I could do. So I went on and picked up Jean at her place. We took a taxi on down to 52nd Street. Billy Holiday. And those big photo blow-ups of her were under the lights outside. Inside, the tables were jammed against the wall. Tables about big enough to get two drinks and four elbows on. The Onyx was one of those very little places. Billy, at the microphone, had just finished a number when she saw Jean and me. A white gown glittered under the spotlight. Her face had that coppery, Indianish look, and her hair was in that trademark ponytail. For her next number, she did the one she knew I always liked so. You don't know what love is. Until you face each dawn with sleepless eyes. Until you've lost a love you hate to lose. When her set was done, Billy came over to our table. She and Jean, who hadn't seen each other in a long time, hugged each other. Billy sensed something wrong with me. She knew that I was always high, but she knew me well enough to see that something else was wrong, and asked in her customary profane language what was the matter with me. And in my own foul vocabulary of those days, I pretended to be without a care, so she let it drop. We had a picture taken by the club photographer that night. The three of us were sitting close together. That was the last time I ever saw Lady Day. She's dead. Dope and heartbreak stopped that heart as big as a barn and that sound and style that no one successfully copies. Lady Day sang with the soul of Negroes from the centuries of sorrow and oppression. What a shame that proud, fine black woman never lived where the true greatness of the black race was appreciated. In the Onyx Club men's room, I sniffed the little packet of cocaine I'd gotten from Sammy. Jean and I, riding back up to Harlem in a cab, decided to have another drink. She had no idea what was happening when she suggested one of my main hangouts, the bar of the Lamar Cherie, on the corner of 147th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. I had my gun and the cocaine courage, and I said okay. And by the time we'd had the drink, I was so high that I asked Jean to take a cab on home, and she did. I never have seen Jean again, either. Like a fool, I didn't leave the bar. I stayed there sitting like a bigger fool, with my back to the door, thinking about West Indian Archie. Since that day, I have never sat with my back to a door, and I never will again. But it's a good thing I was then. I'm positive if I'd seen West Indian Archie come in, I'd have shot to kill. The next thing I knew, West Indian Archie was standing before me, cursing me loud, his gun on me. He was really making his public point, floor showing for the people. He called me foul names, threatened me. Everyone, bartenders and customers, sat or stood as though carved drinks in midair. The jukebox in the rear was going. I'd never seen West Indian Archie high before. Not a whiskey high. I could tell it was something else. I knew the hustler's characteristic of keying up on dope to do a job. I was thinking, I'm going to kill Archie. I'm just going to wait until he turns around to get the drop on him. I could feel my own thirty-two resting against my ribs where it was tucked under my belt, beneath my coat. West Indian Archie, seeming to read my mind, quit cursing, and his words jarred me. You're thinking you're going to kill me first, Red? But I'm going to give you something to think about. I'm sixty. I'm an old man. I've been to Sing Sing. My life is over. You're a young man. Kill me. You're lost anyway. All you can do is go to prison. 
I've since thought that West Indian Archie may have been trying to scare me into running to save both his face and his life. And maybe that's why he was high. No one knew that I hadn't killed anyone. But no one who knew me, including myself, would doubt that I'd kill. I can't guess what might have happened. But under the code, if West Indian Archie had gone out of the door after having humiliated me as he had, I'd have had to follow him out. We'd have shot it out in the street. But some friends of West Indian Archie moved up alongside him, quietly calling his name, Archie, Archie. And he let them put their hands on him, and they drew him aside. I watched them move him past where I was sitting, glaring at me. They were working him back toward the rear. Then, taking my time, I got down off the stool. I dropped a bill on the bar for the bartender. Without looking back, I went out. I stood outside in full view of the bar with my hand in my pocket for perhaps five minutes. When West Indian Archie didn't come out, I left. It must have been five in the morning when downtown I woke up a white actor I knew who lived in the Howard Hotel on 45th Street off 6th Avenue. I knew I had to stay high. The amount of dope I put into myself within the next several hours sounds inconceivable. I got some opium from that fellow. I took a cab back up to my apartment, and I smoked it. My gun was ready if I heard a mosquito cough. My telephone rang. It was the white lesbian who lived downtown. She wanted me to bring her and her girlfriend fifty dollars worth of reefers. I felt that if I had always done it, I had to do it now. Opium had me drowsy. I had a bottle of benzedrine tablets in my bathroom. I swallowed some of them to perk up. The two drugs working in me had my head going in opposite directions at the same time. I knocked at the apartment right behind mine. The dealer let me have loose marijuana on credit. He saw I was so high that he even helped me to roll it, a hundred sticks, and while we were rolling it, we both smoked some. Now opium, benzedrine, reefers. I stopped by Sammy's on the way downtown. His flashing-eyed Spanish Negro woman opened the door. Sammy had gotten weak for that woman. He never let any other of his women hang around so much. Now she was even answering his doorbell. Sammy was by this time very badly addicted. He seemed hardly to recognize me. Lying in bed, he reached under and again brought out that inevitable shaving mirror on which, for some reason, he always kept his cocaine crystals. He motioned for me to sniff some. I didn't refuse. Going downtown to deliver the reefers, I felt sensations I cannot describe in all those different grooves at the same time. The only word to describe it was a timelessness. A day might have seemed to be five minutes, or a half hour might have seemed a week. I can't imagine how I looked when I got to the hotel. When the lesbian and her girlfriend saw me, they helped me to a bed. I fell across it and passed out. That night, when they woke me up, it was half a day beyond West Indian Archie's deadline. Late, I went back uptown. It was on the wire. I could see people who knew me finding business elsewhere. I knew nobody wanted to be caught in a crossfire. But nothing happened. The next day either. I just stayed high. Some raw kid hustling in a bar. I had to bust in his mouth. He came back pulling a blade. I would have shot him, but somebody grabbed him. They put him out, cursing that he was going to kill me. Intuition told me to get rid of my gun. I gave a hustler the eye across the bar. I no more than slipped him the gun from my belt when a cop I'd seen about came in the other door. He had his hand on his gun butt. He knew what was all over the wire. He was certain I'd be armed. He came slowly over toward me, and I knew if I sneezed, he'd blast me down. He said, Take your hand out of your pocket, Red, real carefully. I did. Once he saw me empty-handed, we both could relax a little. He motioned for me to walk outside ahead of him, and I did.
His partner was waiting on the sidewalk opposite their patrol car, double-parked with its radio going. With people stopping, looking, they patted me down there on the sidewalk. What are you looking for? I asked them when they didn't find anything. Red, there's a report you're carrying a gun. I had one, I said, but I threw it in the river. The one who had come into the bar said, I think I'd leave town if I were you, Red. I went back into the bar. Saying that I'd thrown my gun away had kept them from taking me to my apartment. Things I had there could have got me more time than ten guns, and could have gotten them a promotion. Everything was building up, closing in on me. I was trapped in so many cross turns. West Indian Archie gunning for me, the Italians who thought I'd stuck up their crap game after me, the scared kid hustler I'd hit, the cops. For four years up to that point, I'd been lucky enough or slick enough to escape jail or even getting arrested or any serious trouble. But I knew that any minute now, something had to give. Sammy had done something that I'd often wished I could have thanked him for. When I heard the car's horn, I was walking on St. Nicholas Avenue, but my ears were hearing a gun. I didn't dream the horn could possibly be for me. Homeboy! I jerked around. I came close to shooting. Shorty! From Boston. I'd scared him nearly to death. Daddy-o! I couldn't have been happier. Inside the car, he told me Sammy had telephoned about how I was jammed up tight and told him he'd better come and get me. And Shorty did his band's date, then borrowed his piano man's car and burned up the miles to New York. I didn't put up any objections to leaving. Shorty stood watch outside my apartment. I brought out and stuffed into the car's trunk what little stuff I cared to hang on to. Then we hit the highway. Shorty had been without sleep for about 36 hours. He told me afterward that through just about the whole ride back, I talked out of my head. Chapter 9 Caught Ella couldn't believe how atheist, how uncouth I'd become. I believed that a man should do anything that he was slick enough or bad and bold enough to do, and that a woman was nothing but another commodity. Every word I spoke was hip or profane. I would bet that my working vocabulary wasn't two hundred words. Even Shorty, whose apartment I now again shared, wasn't prepared for how I lived and thought, like a predatory animal. Sometimes I would catch him watching me. At first, I slept a lot, even at night. I'd slept mostly in the daytime during the preceding two years. When awake, I smoked reefers. Shorty had originally introduced me to marijuana, and my consumption of it now astounded him. I didn't want to talk much at first. When awake, I'd play records continuously. The reefers gave me a feeling of contentment. I would enjoy hours of floating, daydreaming, imaginary conversations with my New York musician friends. Within two weeks, I'd had more sleep than during any two months when I'd been in Harlem, hustling day and night. When I finally went out in the Roxbury streets, it took me only a little while to locate a pedal of snow, cocaine. It was when I got back into that familiar snow feeling that I began to want to talk. Cocaine produces, for those who sniff its powdery white crystals, an illusion of supreme well-being and a soaring overconfidence in both physical and mental ability. You think you could whip the heavyweight champion and that you are smarter than everybody. There was also that feeling of timelessness, and there were intervals of ability to recall and review things that had happened years back with an astonishing clarity. Shorty's band played at spots around Boston three or four nights a week. After he left for work, Sophia would come over and I'd talk about my plans. She would be gone back to her husband by the time Shorty returned from work, and I'd bend his ear until daybreak. Sophia's husband had gotten out of the military, and he was some sort of salesman. 
He was supposed to have a big deal going, which soon would require his traveling a lot to the West Coast. I didn't ask questions, but Sevier often indicated they weren't doing too well. I know I had nothing to do with that. He never dreamed I existed. A white woman might blow up at her husband and scream and yell and call him every name she can think of and say the most vicious things in an effort to hurt him and talk about his mother and his grandmother, too. But one thing she never will tell him herself is that she's going with a black man. That's one automatic red murder flag to the white man, and his woman knows it. Sophia always had given me money, even when I had hundreds of dollars in my pocket. When she came to Harlem, I would take everything she had short of her train fare back to Boston. It seems that some women love to be exploited. When they're not exploited, they exploit the man. Anyway, it was his money that she gave me, I guess, because she never had worked. But now my demands on her increased, and she came up with more. Again, I don't know where she got it. Always, every now and then, I'd given her a hard time just to keep her in line. Every once in a while, a woman seems to need, in fact, wants this, too. But now I would feel evil and slap her around worse than ever, some of the nights when Shorty was away. She would cry, curse me, and swear that she would never be back. But I knew she wasn't even thinking about not coming back. Sophia's being around was one of Shorty's greatest pleasures about my homecoming. I've said it before. I never in my life have seen a black man that desired white women as sincerely as Shorty did. Since I'd known him, he had several. He'd never been able to keep a white woman any length of time, though, because he was too good to them. And as I've said, any woman, white or black, seems to get bored with that. It happened that Shorty was between white women when one night Sophia brought to the house her 17-year-old sister. I never saw anything like the way that she and Shorty nearly jumped for each other. For him, she wasn't only a white girl, but a young white girl. For her, he wasn't only a Negro, but a Negro musician. In looks, she was a younger version of Sophia, who still turned heads. Sometimes I take the two girls to Negro places where Shorty played. Negroes showed 32 teeth apiece as soon as they saw the white girls. They would come over to your booth or your table. They would stand there and drool. And Shorty was no better. He'd stand up there playing and watching that young girl waiting for him and waving at him and winking. As soon as the set was over, he practically run over people getting down to our table. I didn't lindy hop anymore now. I wouldn't even have thought of it now, just as I wouldn't have been caught in a zoot suit now. All of my suits were conservative. A banker might have worn my shoes. I met Laura again. We were really glad to see each other. She was a lot more like me now. A good time girl. We talked and laughed. She looked a lot older than she really was. She had no one man. She freelanced around. She had long since moved away from her grandmother. Laura told me she'd finished school, but then she gave up the college idea. Laura was high whenever I saw her now, too. We smoked some reefers together. After about a month of laying dead, as inactivity was called, I knew I had to get some kind of hustle going. A hustler broke needs a stake. Some nights when Shorty was playing, I would take whatever Sophia had been able to get for me, and I'd try to run it up into something playing stud poker John Hughes's gambling house. When I lived in Roxbury before, John Hughes had been a big gambler who wouldn't have spoken to me. But during the war, the Roxbury wire had carried a lot about things I was doing in Harlem, and now the New York name magic was on me. That was the feeling that hustlers everywhere else had. If you could hustle and make it in New York, they were well off to know you. It gave them prestige. Anyway, through the same flush war years, John Hughes had hustled profitably enough to be able to open a pretty good gambling house. John one night was playing in a game I was in. After the first two cards were dealt around the table, I had an ace showing. 
I looked beneath it at my whole card. Another ace. A pair, back to back. My ace showing made it my turn to bet. But I didn't rush. I sat there and studied. Finally, I knocked my knuckles on the table, passing, leaving the betting to the next man. My action implied that beneath my ace was some nothing card that I didn't care to risk my money on. The player sitting next to me took the bait. He bet pretty heavily, and the next man raised him. Possibly each of them had small pairs. Maybe they just wanted to scare me out before I drew another ace. Finally, the bet reached John, who had a queen showing. He raised everybody. Now there was no telling what John had. John truly was a clever gambler. He could gamble as well as anybody I'd gambled with in New York. So the bet came back to me. It was going to cost me a lot of money to call all the raises. Some of them obviously had good cards, but I knew I had every one of them beat. But again, I studied and studied. I pretended perplexity. And finally, I put in my money, calling the bets. The same betting pattern went on with each new card, right around to the last card. And when that last card went around, I hit another ace in sight. Three aces. And John hit another queen in sight. He bet a pile. Now everyone else studied a long time. And one by one, all folded their hands. Except me. All I could do was put what I had left on the table. If I'd had the money, I could have raised $500 or more. And he'd have had to call me. John couldn't have gone the rest of his life wondering if I had bluffed him out of a pot that big. I showed my whole card ace. John had three queens. As I hauled in the pot, something over $500, my first real stake in Boston, John got up from the table. He'd quit. He told his houseman, Anytime Red comes in here and wants anything, let him have it, he said. I've never seen a young man play his whole card like he played. John said, young man, being himself about 50, I guess, although you can never be certain about a Negro's age. He thought, as most people would have, that I was about 30. No one in Roxbury except my sisters Ella and Mary suspected my real age. The story of that poker game helped my on-scene reputation among the other gamblers and hustlers around Roxbury. Another thing that happened in John's gambling house contributed. The incident that made it known that I carried not a gun, but some guns. John had a standing rule that anyone who came into the place to gamble had to check his guns if he had any. I always checked two guns. Then one night when a gambler tried to pull something slick, I drew a third gun from its shoulder holster. This added to the rest of my reputation the word that I was trigger-happy and crazy. Looking back, I think I really was at least slightly out of my mind. I viewed narcotics as most people regard food. I wore my guns as today I wear my neckties. Deep down, I actually believe that after living as fully as humanly possible, one should then die violently. I expected then, as I still expect today, to die at any time. But then, I think I deliberately invited death in many, sometimes insane ways. For instance, a merchant marine sailor who knew me and my reputation came into a bar carrying a package. He motioned me to follow him downstairs into the men's room. He unwrapped a stolen machine gun. He wanted to sell it. I said, how do I know it works? He loaded it with a cartridge clip and told me that all I would have to do then was squeeze the trigger release. I took the gun, examined it, and the first thing he knew I had it jammed right up in his belly. I told him I would blow him wide open. He went backwards out of the restroom and up the stairs the way Bill Bojangles Robinson used to dance going backwards. He knew I was crazy enough to kill him. 
I was insane enough not to consider that he might just wait his chance to kill me. For perhaps a month I kept the machine gun at Shorty's before I was broke and sold it. When Reginald came to Roxbury visiting, he was shocked at what he'd found out upon returning to Harlem. I spent some time with him. He still was the kid brother whom I still felt more family toward than I felt now even for our sister Ella. Ella still liked me. I would go to see her once in a while, but Ella had never been able to reconcile herself to the way I had changed. She has since told me that she had a steady foreboding that I was on my way into big trouble. But I always had the feeling that Ella somehow admired my rebellion against the world, because she, who had so much more drive and guts than most men, often felt stymied by having been born female. Had I been thinking only in terms of myself, maybe I would have chosen steady gambling as a hustle. There were enough chump gamblers that hung around John Hughes for a good gambler to make a living off them. Chumps that worked, usually. One would just have to never miss the games on their paydays. Besides, John Hughes had offered me a job dealing for games. I didn't want that. But I'd come around to thinking not only of myself. I wanted to get something going that could help Shorty, too. We'd been talking. I really felt sorry for Shorty. The same old musician story. The so-called glamour of being a musician earning just about enough money so that after he paid rent and bought his reefers and food and other routine things, he had nothing left. Plus debts. How could Shorty have anything? I'd spent years in Harlem and on the road around the most popular musicians, the names even, who really were making big money for musicians, and they had nothing. For that matter, all the thousands of dollars I'd handled, and I had nothing. Just satisfying Michael Caine habit alone cost me about $20 a day. I guess another $5 a day could have been added for reefers and plain tobacco cigarettes that I smoked. Besides getting high on drugs, I chain-smoked as many as four packs a day. And if you ask me today, I'll tell you that tobacco, in all its forms, is just as much an addiction as any narcotic. When I opened the subject of a hustle with Shorty, I started by first bringing him to agree with my concept, of which he was a living proof, that only squares kept on believing they could ever get anything by slaving. And when I mentioned what I had in mind, house burglary, Shorty, who always had been so relatively conservative, really surprised me by how quickly he agreed. He didn't even know anything about burglarizing. When I began to explain how it was done, Shorty wanted to bring in this friend of his, whom I had met and liked, called Rudy. Rudy's mother was Italian. His father was a Negro. He was born right there in Boston, a short, light fellow, a pretty boy type. Rudy worked regularly for an employment agency that sent him to wait on tables at exclusive parties. He had a side deal going, a hustle that took me right back to the old steering days in Harlem. Once a week, Rudy went to the home of this old, rich, Boston blue blood, pillar of society, aristocrat. He paid Rudy to undress them both, then pick up the old man like a baby, lay him on his bed, then stand over him and sprinkle him all over with talcum powder. Rudy said the old man would actually reach his climax from that. I told him and Shorty about some of the things I'd seen. Rudy said that as far as he knew, Boston had no organized specialty sex houses, just individual rich whites who had their private specialty desires catered to by Negroes who came to their homes camouflaged as chauffeurs, maids, waiters, or some other accepted image. Just as in New York, these were the rich, the highest society, the predominantly old men past the age of ability to conduct any kind of ordinary sex, always hunting for new ways to be sensitive. Rudy, I remember, spoke of one old white man who paid a black couple to let him watch them have intercourse on his bed. Another was so sensitive that he paid to sit on a chair outside a room where a couple was... 
He got his satisfaction just from imagining what was going on inside. A good burglary team includes, I knew, what is called a finder. A finder is one who locates lucrative places to rob. Another principal need is someone able to case these places' physical layouts to determine means of entry, the best getaway routes, and so forth. Rudy qualified on both counts. Being sent to work in rich homes, he wouldn't be suspected when he sized up their loot and cased the joint, just running around looking busy with a white coat on. Rudy's reaction when he was told what we had in mind was something I remember like, Man, when do we start? But I wasn't rushing off half-cocked. I'd learned from some of the pros and from my own experience how important it was to be careful and plan. Burglary, properly executed, though it had its dangers, offered the maximum chances of success with the minimum risk. If you did your job so that you never met any of your victims, it first lessened your chances of having to attack or perhaps kill someone. And if through some slip-up you were caught, later by the police, there was never a positive eyewitness. It is also important to select an area of burglary and stick to that. There are specific specialties among burglars. Some work apartments only, others houses only, others stores only, or warehouses. Still others will go after only safes or strong boxes. Within the residence burglary category, there are further specialty distinctions. There are the day burglars, the dinner and theater time burglars, the night burglars. I think that any city's police will tell you that very rarely do they find one type who will work at another time. For instance, Jump Steady in Harlem was a nighttime apartment specialist. It would have been hard to persuade Jump Steady to work in the daytime if a millionaire had gone out for lunch and left his front door wide open. I had one very practical reason never to work in the daytime, aside from my inclinations. With my high visibility, I'd have been sunk in the daytime. I could just hear people. A reddish-brown negro over six feet tall. One glance would be enough. Setting up what I wanted to be the perfect operation, I thought about pulling the white girls into it for two reasons. One was that I realized would be too limited relying only upon places where Rudy worked as a waiter. He didn't get to work in too many places. It wouldn't be very long before we ran out of sources. And when other places had to be found and cased in the rich, white residential areas, Negroes hanging around would stick out like sore thumbs. But these white girls could get invited into the right places. I disliked the idea of having too many people involved all at the same time. But with Shorty and Sophia's sister so close now, and Sophia and me as though we had been together for fifty years, and Rudy as eager and cool as he was, nobody would be apt to spill. Everybody would be under the same risk. We would be like a family unit. I never doubted that Sophia would go along. Sophia would do anything, I said. And her sister would do anything that Sophia said. They both went for it. Sophia's husband was away on one of his trips to the coast when I told her and her sister. Most burglars I knew were caught not on the job, but trying to dispose of the loot. Finding the fence we used was a rare piece of luck. We agreed upon the plan for operations. The fence didn't work with us directly. He had a representative, an ex-con who dealt with me and no one else in my gang. Aside from his regular business, he owned around Boston several garages and small warehouses. The arrangement was that before a job, I would alert the representative and give him a general idea of what we expected to get and he'd tell me at which garage or warehouse we should make the drop. After we'd made our drop, the representative would examine the stolen articles. He would remove all identifying marks from everything. Then he would call the fence, who would come and make a personal appraisal. 
The next day the representative would meet me at a prearranged place and would make the payment for what we had stolen. In cash. One thing I remember. This fence always sent your money in crisp, brand new bills. He was smart. Somehow that had a very definite psychological effect upon all of us. After we'd pulled a job, walking around with that crisp green money in our pockets. He may have had other reasons. We needed a base of operations, not in Roxbury. The girls rented an apartment in Harvard Square. Unlike Negroes, these white girls could go shopping for the locale and physical situation we wanted. It was on the ground floor where, moving late at night, all of us could come and go without attracting notice. In any organization, someone must be the boss. If it's even just one person, you've got to be the boss of yourself. At our gang's first meeting in the apartment, we discussed how we were going to work. The girls would get into houses to case them by ringing bells and saying they were saleswomen, poll takers, college girls making a survey or anything else suitable. Once in the houses, they would get around as much as they could without attracting attention. Then, back, they would report what special valuables they had seen and where. They would draw the layout for Shorty, Rudy, and me. We agreed that the girls would actually burglarize only in special cases where there would be some advantage. But generally, the three men would go, two of us to do the job, while the third kept watching the getaway car with the motor running. Talking to them, laying down the plans, I deliberately sat on a bed away from them. All of a sudden, I pulled out my gun, shook out all five bullets, and then let them see me put back only one bullet. I twirled the cylinder and put the muzzle to my head. Now I'm going to see how much guts all of you have, I said. I grinned at them. All of their mouths had flapped open. I pulled the trigger. We all heard it. Click. I'm going to do it again now. They begged me to stop. I could see in Shorty's and Rudy's eyes some idea of rushing me. We all heard the hammer click on another empty cylinder. The women were in hysterics. Rudy and Shorty were begging, Man, Red, cut it out, man, freeze! I pulled the trigger once more. I'm doing this, showing you I'm not afraid to die, I told them. Never cross a man not afraid to die. Now let's get to work. I never had one moment's trouble with any of them after that. Sophia acted awed. Her sister all but called me Mr. Red. Shorty and Rudy were never again quite the same with me. Neither of them ever mentioned it. They thought I was crazy. They were afraid of me. We pulled the first job that night. The place of the old man who hired Rudy to sprinkle him with talcum powder. A cleaner job couldn't have been asked for. Everything went like clockwork. The fence was full of praise. He proved he meant it with his crisp new money. The old man later told Rudy how a small army of detectives had been there and they decided that the job had the earmarks of some gang which had been operating around Boston for about a year. We quickly got it down to a science. The girls would scout and case in wealthy neighborhoods. The burglary would be pulled. Sometimes it took no more than ten minutes. Shorty and I did most of the actual burglary. Rudy generally had the getaway car. If the people weren't at home, we'd use a passkey on a common door lock. On a patent lock, we'd use a jimmy, as it's called, or a lock pick. Or sometimes we would enter by windows from a fire escape or a roof. Gullible women often took the girls all over their houses, just to hear them exclaiming over the finery. With the help of the girls' drawings and a finger-beam searchlight, we went straight to the things we wanted. Sometimes the victims were in their beds asleep. That may sound very daring. Actually, it was almost easy. 
The first thing we had to do when people were in the house was to wait, very still, and pick up the sounds of breathing. Snorers we loved. They made it real easy. In stockinged feet, we'd go right into the bedrooms. Moving swiftly, like shadows, we would lift clothes, watches, wallets, handbags, and jewelry boxes. The Christmas season was Santa Claus for us. People had expensive presents lying all over their houses, and they'd taken more cash than usual out of their banks. Sometimes working earlier than we usually did, we even worked houses that we hadn't cased. If the shades were drawn full and no lights were on, and there was no answer when one of the girls rang the bell, we would take the chance and go in. I can give you a very good tip if you want to keep burglars out of your house. A light on for the burglar to see is the very best single means of protection. One of the ideal things is to leave a bathroom light on all night. The bathroom is one place where somebody could be for any length of time, at any time of the night, and he would be likely to hear the slightest strange sound. The burglar, knowing this, won't try to enter. It's also the cheapest possible protection. The kilowatts are a lot cheaper than your valuables. We became efficient. The fence sometimes relayed tips as to where we could find good loot. It was in this way that for one period, one of our best periods, I remember, we specialized in oriental rugs. I've always suspected that the fence himself sold the rugs to the people we stole them from, but anyway, you wouldn't imagine the value of those things. I remember one small one that brought us a thousand dollars. There's no telling what the fence got for it. Every burglar knew that fences robbed the burglars worse than the burglars had robbed the victims. Our only close brush with the law came once when we were making our getaway, three of us in the front seat of the car, and the back seat loaded with stuff. Suddenly we saw a police car around the corner, coming toward us, and it went on past us. They were just cruising. But then in the rear-view mirror, we saw them make a U-turn, and we knew they were going to flash us to stop. They had spotted us in passing as Negroes, and they knew that Negroes had no business in the area at that hour. It was a close situation. There was a lot of robbery going on. We weren't the only gang working. We knew, not by any means. But I knew that the white man is rare who will ever consider that a Negro can outsmart him. Before their light began flashing, I told Rudy to stop. I did what I had done once before. Got out and flagged them, walking toward them. When they stopped, I was at their car. I asked them, bumbling my words like a confused Negro, if they could tell me how to get to a Roxbury address. They told me, and we, and they, went on about our respective businesses. We were going along fine. We'd make a good pile and then lay low a while, living it up. Shorty still played with his band. Rudy never missed attending his sensitive old man, or the table waiting at his exclusive parties, and the girls maintained their routine home schedules. Sometimes I still took the girls out to places where Shorty played and to other places, spending money as though it were going out of style, the girls dressed in jewelry and furs they had selected from our halls. No one knew our hustle, but it was clear that we were doing fine. And sometimes the girls would come over and we'd meet them either at Shorty's in Roxbury or in our Harvard Square place and just smoke reefers and play music. It's a shame to tell on a man. But Shorty was so obsessed with the white girl that even if the lights were out, he would pull up the shade to be able to see that white flesh by the street lamp from outside. Early evenings, when we were laying low between jobs, I often went to a Massachusetts Avenue nightclub called the Savoy, and Sophia would telephone me there punctually. Even when we pulled jobs, I would leave from this club, then rush back there after the job. The reason was so that if it was ever necessary, people could testify that they had seen me at just about the time the job was pulled, Negroes being questioned by policemen would be very hard to pin down on any exact time. Boston at this time had two Negro detectives. Ever since I'd come back on the Roxbury scene, one of these detectives 
a dark brown fellow named Turner, had never been able to stand me, and it was mutual. He talked about what he would do to me, and I had promptly put an answer back on the wire. I knew from the way he began to act that he'd heard it. Everyone knew that I carried guns, and he did have sense enough to know that I wouldn't hesitate to use them, and on him, detective or not. This early evening I was in this place when at the usual time the phone in the booth rang. It rang just as this detective Turner happened to walk in through the front door. He saw me start to get up. He knew the call was for me, but stepped inside the booth and answered. I heard him saying, looking straight at me, Hello? 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 And I knew that Sophia, taking no chances with a strange voice, had hung up. Wasn't that call for me? I asked Turner. He said that it was. I said, well, Why didn't you say so? He gave me a rude answer. I knew he wanted me to make a move first. We both were being cagey. We both knew that we wanted to kill each other. Neither wanted to say the wrong thing. Turner didn't want to say anything that repeated would make him sound bad. I didn't want to say anything that could be interpreted as a threat to a cop. But I remember exactly what I said to him anyway, purposely loud enough for some people at the bar to hear me. I said, You know, Turner, you're trying to make history. Don't you know that if you play with me, you certainly will go down in history because you've got to kill me? Turner looked at me. Then he backed down. He walked on by me. I guess he wasn't ready to make history. I'd gotten to the point where I was walking on my own coffin. It's a law of the rackets that every criminal expects to get caught. He tries to stave off the inevitable for as long as he can. Drugs helped me push the thought to the back of my mind. They were the center of my life. I'd gotten to the stage where every day I used enough drugs, reefers, cocaine, or both, so that I felt above any worries, any strains. If any worries did manage to push their way through to the surface of my consciousness, I could float them back where they came from until tomorrow, and then until the next day. But where always before I had been able to smoke the reefers and to sniff the snow and rarely show it very much, by now it was not that easy. One week when we weren't working, after a big haul, I was just staying high, and I was out night clubbing. I came into this club, and from the bartender's face when he spoke, Hello, Red. I knew that something was wrong, but I didn't ask him anything. I've always had this rule. Never ask anybody in that kind of situation. They will tell you what they want you to know. But the bartender didn't get a chance to tell me if he had meant to. When I sat down on a stool in order to drink, I saw them. Sophia and her sister sat at a table inside, near the dance floor, with a white man. I don't know how I ever made such a mistake as I next did. I could have talked to her later. I didn't know or care who the white fellow was. Michael Caine told me to get up. It wasn't Sophia's husband. It was his closest friend. They'd served in the war together. With her husband out of town, he'd asked Sophia and her sister out to dinner, and they went. But then later, after dinner, driving around, he'd suddenly suggested going over to the black ghetto. Every Negro that lives in a city has seen the type a thousand times, the northern cracker who will go to visit Niggertown to be amused at the Coons. The girl, so well known in the Negro places in Roxbury, had tried to change his mind, but he had insisted. So they just held their breaths coming to this club where they'd been a hundred times. They walked in stiff-eyeing the bartenders and waiters who caught their message and acted as though they'd never seen them before. And they were sitting there with drinks before them, praying that no Negro who knew them would barge up to their table. Then up I came. I know I called them Baby. They were chalky white. He was beet red. That same night, back at the Harvard Square place, I really got sick. It was less of a physical sickness than it was all of the last five years catching up. I was in my pajamas in bed half asleep when I heard someone knock. 
I knew that something was wrong. We all had keys. No one ever knocked at the door. I rolled off and under the bed. I was so groggy it didn't cross my mind to grab for my gun on the dresser. Under the bed I heard the key turn, and I saw the shoes and pants cuffs walk in. I watched them walk around. I saw them stop. Every time they stopped, I knew what the eyes were looking at. And I knew, before he did, that he was going to get down and look under the bed. He did. It was Sophia's husband's friend. His face was about two feet from mine. It looked congealed. <laughs> I fooled you, didn't I? I said. It wasn't at all funny. I got out from under the bed, still fake laughing. He didn't run. I'll say that for him. He stood back. He watched me as though I were a snake. I didn't try to hide what he already knew. The girls had some things in the closets and around. He'd seen all of that. We even talked some. I told him the girls weren't there, and he left. What shook me the most was realizing that I trapped myself under the bed without a gun. I really was slipping. I'd put a stolen watch into a jewelry shop to replace a broken crystal. It was about two days later when I went to pick up the watch that things fell apart. As I've said, a gun was as much a part of my dress as a necktie. I had my gun in a shoulder holster under my coat. The loser of the watch, the person from whom it had been stolen by us, I later found, had described the repair that it needed. It was a very expensive watch. That's why I'd kept it for myself. And all of the jewelers in Boston had been alerted. The Jew waited until I'd paid him before he laid the watch on the counter. He gave a signal. And this other fellow suddenly appeared from the back, walking toward me. One hand was in his pocket. I knew he was a cop. He said quietly, Step into the back. Just as I started back there, an innocent Negro walked into the shop. I remember later hearing that he just that day gotten out of the military. The detective, thinking he was with me, turned to him. There I was, wearing my gun, and the detective talking to that Negro with his back to me. Today, I believe that Allah was with me even then. I didn't try to shoot him. And that saved my life. I remember that his name was Detective Slack. I raised my arm and motioned to him. Here, take my gun. I saw his face when he took it. He was shocked. Because of the sudden appearance of the other Negro, he had never thought about a gun. It really moved him that I hadn't tried to kill him. Then, holding my gun in his hand, he signaled, and out from where they'd been concealed walked two other detectives that had me covered. One false move, I'd have been dead. I was going to have a long time in prison to think about that. If I hadn't been arrested right when I was, I could have been dead another way. Sophia's husband's friend had told her husband about me, and the husband had arrived that morning and had gone to the apartment with a gun looking for me. He was at the apartment just about when they took me to the precinct. The detectives grilled me. They didn't beat me. They didn't even put a finger on me. And I knew it was because I hadn't tried to kill the detective. They got my address from some papers they found on me. The girls soon were picked up. Shorty was pulled right off the bandstand that night. The girls also had implicated Rudy. To this day, I've always marveled at how Rudy somehow got the word, and I know he must have caught the first thing smoking out of Boston, and he got away. They never got him. I thought a thousand times, I guess, about how I so narrowly escaped death twice that day. That's why I believe that everything is written. The cops found the apartment loaded with evidence. Fur coats, some jewelry, other small stuff, plus the tools of our trade. A jimmy, a lockpick, glass cutters, screwdrivers, pencil beam flashlights, false keys, and my small arsenal of guns. The girls got low bail. They were still white, burglars or not. 
Their worst crime was their involvement with Negroes. But Shorty and I had bails set at $10,000 each, which they knew we were nowhere near able to raise. The social workers worked on us. White women in league with Negroes was their main obsession. The girls weren't so-called tramps or trash. They were well-to-do upper-middle-class whites. That bothered the social workers and the forces of the law more than anything else. How, where, when had I met them? Did we sleep together? Nobody wanted to know anything at all about the robberies. All they could see was that we'd taken the white man's women. I just looked at the social workers. Now, what do you think? Even the court clerks and the bailiffs, nice white girls, goddamn niggers. It was the same even from our court-appointed lawyers as we sat down under guard at a table as our hearing assembled. Before the judge entered, I said to one lawyer, we seem to be getting sentenced because of those girls. He got red from the neck up and shuffled his papers. You had no business with white girls. Later, when I'd learned the full truth about the white man, I reflected many times that the average burglary sentence for a first offender, as we all were, was about two years. But we weren't going to get the average. Not for our crime. I want to say before I go on, that I have never previously told anyone my sordid past in detail. I haven't done it now, to sound as though I might be proud of how bad, how evil I was. But people are always speculating. Why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life, from birth, must be reviewed. All of our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. Today, when everything that I do has an urgency, I would not spend one hour in the preparation of a book which had the ambition to perhaps titillate some readers. But I am spending many hours because the full story is the best way that I know to have it seen and understood that I had sunk to the very bottom of the American white man society when, soon now, in prison. I found Allah and the religion of Islam, and it completely transformed my life. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we're picking up on the second audio segment, uh, chapter 10, Satan. Chapter 10, that's what we're picking up for the second audio segment. Uh, we were a little late getting started. Again, some audio issues where uh, just was not, the folks couldn't hear the broadcast who were listening online. Uh, thanks for the folks for being patient. Uh, looking forward to that not being a continued issue. I uh, always, that burns my grits as well. We're not able to be prompt and on time. At any rate, thanks for the folks being patient, hanging in. Hope it has been uh constructive, worthy of your Friday evening. Uh, if you would like to dial in to share, the number to dial is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again. Seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six. The code is five six four.
nine four three pound again once you put the code in uh, and press pound press star six if you would like to participate you will hear the audio prompt to press the number one to raise your hand uh, if you anywhere in the world don't have a phone and would like to participate you can use the free flash phone it is linked on the black talk radio network uh, if you can't find the button or need the earl it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one uh, that address again is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put that address in you'll see the button on the left side of the page it says free flash phone click that link uh, when you do so it will open a tiny window on your screen the top line is a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six the next line it will give you or ask for the code that code is five six four nine four three again the code five six four nine four three uh, in the final line it will ask for a name you can you know do whatever put in your real name nickname you can press random keys if you like uh, once you get all that entered, just click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. It is the same procedure. Press star six. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. You will hear the audio prompt. Press the number one. That will put your hand up and we can get you on the line. Again, when we pick back up, it will be on chapter 10. Uh, everyone who dialed in, line should be open. Uh, we'll get in. Number one, we had... Uh, at least for me, it stood out when he said things fall apart. Uh, we did uh, Mr. Achibe's uh, book, uh, I believe it was last year or it might have been two years ago. Uh, we didn't do things fall apart. We did the education of a British protected child, uh, but it did remind me of that. He passed away, I think, uh, two years ago. Uh, Chinua Achebe, um, that was one. Uh, and then also... Uh, at the very beginning of the broadcast, we started with the audio segment of uh, Yuri Kochiyama, her granddaughter. She passed away last year uh, as well. That was from uh, the talk at the Schomburg Center uh, on the 50 year anniversary of Minister Malcolm's uh, assassination. They had quite a few uh, different speakers and, and that was a segment. You can watch that full segment online. I've uh, linked it uh, with this program uh, repeatedly if you want to check it out and see what they had to say. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Yes, Roger. Yes, sir. All right, this is Denver Four here. Greetings, guests, and greetings to the other callers, listeners. Uh, the first thing I want to cover is what came to me listening to the uh, book is that, you know, I have been erroneously referring to the protagonist as uh, Minister Malcolm or Malcolm X. But I noticed that 
he was not uh, Minister Malcolm or Malcolm X. At this point, he was just Detroit Red. So in my commentary, I'll uh, refer to uh, him as Detroit Red. And uh, like a female caller uh, brought up earlier, after his conversion, then uh, I can refer to him as uh, uh, Minister Malcolm X. But <clears throat> one of the first things that uh, I wanted to bring up uh, was uh, the code among the hustlers, but no backing down um, that West Indian Archie was wrongfully accusing uh, Detroit Red of, of uh, taking money on our numbers that hit that he said did not hit, but we have to remember West Indian Archie never took down uh, slips of paper on numbers. He remembered them in his head. So that would give you an indication that he would have a high probability of uh, being mistaken about that incident. And I like the way the author uh, uses um, the scenario to paint a picture of a serious uh, situation as the one when West Indian Archie uh, came in on uh, on Red over Sammy's house. And when he put the gun, well, Red was close enough to determine that it was a thirty-two twenty, but it was interesting that that the author did not describe what Red's reaction was to the gun uh, being pushed in his face. Um, and I think he rightfully uh, concluded that, you know, in what he called the, um, the jungle, you know, the hustler's code, where you could possibly lose faith or honor among the other hustlers. It was very important to him and that uh, his reputation among the gamblers and the hustlers was very important, not only in Harlem, but uh, also in, in Boston. Uh, it had come down to the point that uh, uh, West Indian Archie uh, was threatening, you know, him for his money. And it was important to Red at this time that uh, he got respect, his reputation, his respect. And I think that he looked at fear as equal to respect. He, uh, he wanted people to believe that he was not afraid to die. But the book mentioned that he was, a, he was scared of West Indian Archie. And, and another instance, when he was uh, faced with a police officer, he was careful not to say anything that would uh, constitute a threat to a police officer. So, and he mentioned several times of walking on his own grave and, 
things of that sort, you know, which uh, would lead people to believe that maybe he was a little crazy and that he did not value his own life. But uh, we'll find later that uh, most of that was a facade. I remember reading somewhere the, uh, the, the little trick he did with the gun, spinning the cylinder, putting it to his head. He uh, confessed to Alex Haley later that the gun was not loaded. He just uh, uh, fooled him. But he got his point across, and, and I guess that fear uh, translated into uh, respect. Uh, uh, you might want to ring the cowbell because I got to spend a little time on this, uh, the white woman, uh, and, uh, how she would blow up at her husband and talk about his mother and his grandmother. And, but one thing she would never tell him about herself is that she was born with a black man. Well, and that that's one automatic red murder flag to the white man, and his woman knows that. But there's been numerous occasions throughout history where white women have accused black men uh, falsely of rape and everything else in between. And uh, black men have met their demise behind lies of white women and them telling white men uh, that some beastly, black accosted them in some type of way. And also, he said he felt sorry for Shorty. He wanted to help him. <laughs> Excuse me for that. But, uh, he said he had never in his life seen a black man that desired white women so sincerely as Shorty. I thought it was interesting that he throw Shorty under the bus when he had a white woman sitting right there with him. You know. But uh, if it happened that it just so happened that Sophia brought her sister along to the house to meet Shorty. Now, you know, go figure. Uh, I guess he thought he was helping Shorty out, but uh, we all know that that's one thing that uh, should be avoided. Uh, they needed the white girls in their little burglary ring to uh, to rent their base of operations, which was in Harvard Square. But unlike non-whites, these girls, I guess, could go shopping in the locale and the physical situations that they wanted to get themselves into. They could go and ring the doorbells, case out the joint, and this and that. But I thought it was interesting that when he described uh, Rudy, Rudy was described as a finder. And a finder is someone who locates lucrative places to rob. But I think the white girls would fit in that category, too. They were casing out joints, and, uh, but they was not referred to as finders. Uh, uh, they did, they did the same thing as a finder was, was not referred to as one. And the fences that they sold the goods to, uh, suspect were whites. 
and he mentioned that they robbed the robbers. So, <clears throat> another interesting point uh, when he had to run in with Detective Turner in the uh, Savoy, uh, Sophia was telephoning him punctually. I thought that that was interesting that they used that word because early in the book, that's one thing that Red was not punctual. Uh, I think the detective Turner knew more than he let on to be because he happened to walk in at the same time that she was calling. Um, and last but not least, the husband's friend, uh, when he was at the table with the two white women, Red came up and called them baby. Then he turned red and the girls turned white. You know, so I guess we can draw our own conclusions to that. The uh, white man did not like uh, the uh, black person, the black male, coming up to the table and addressing the white women as babes or a baby. And he said that, I, you know, somebody have to explain that under the bed scene because... Uh, I don't know. I got lost there. He's looking under the bed and Red's hiding under the bed. He's supposed to be this uh, big-time hustler that uh, is worried about saving face, but he's hiding under the bed. Uh, last, he said that people ask, why am I as I am? And to understand that, the person has to look his whole life from birth and must do a review on it. And that holds true, I believe, because uh, in all of the 12-step programs that's out there now, one of the first things that, well, after you admit that you have an addiction or some type of uh, 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 malality, then you would uh, uh, go on to do a review and a step that, you would have to record everything that you did through life and bring out those bad points. So I think that uh, although his life uh, was on a downward trend and his morals were being uh, stomped on, uh, he still had a glimmer of hope there. And uh, I think we're beginning to see a change. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. This is Perseverance from New York. Um, Dr. Kambaum always says, or you always say it on the show, that we need to stop financing our own destruction. And I think drugs and narcotics is one way we do this the most and one way that um, white people practice racism against us. Um, narcotics will make a person degrade themselves in ways that they never thought were possible. Um, last year, I think a book came out called Malcolm X, A Life of uh, Reinvented, and it claims that Malcolm was bisexual due to, um, you know, what he was doing um, with this this white man putting baby powder on him. And what I think it is, I don't think that he was bisexual. I think that the drugs made him lose himself and made him lose his soul, and that's what drugs are designed to do. And not only um, do I think that 
cocaine and, and heroin and those type of drugs are narcotics. I also think that they get us addicted to caffeine. Um, what's new now is this K2 that's making people um, go into psychosis, um, cannabis, which is bec- becoming more legal, sugar, and nicotine. And these are all of substances that black people are highly addicted to and how they get us to be confused and not be able to drink, I mean, be able to think um, correctly. Um, what was I going to say? Um, drugs are um, prevalent due to white folks because they put it out there for us. We don't bring it here. And um, it's also a double-edged sword for us, not only... Um, do they kill us and our families and make us dysfunctional and slow death or fast death? But they also make money um, off of drugs. And, and I think that drugs is one of the top ten ways that our government and all these rich white folks stay rich. And ways that they, ways that I think that they make money off of it is, of course, is the prison industrial complex. And now they're charging people to go visit loved ones in prison. The phone calls, the packages, the stuff you have to buy for your loved ones, um, the free labor that they're getting off of us. When they, when they do a drug raise, they seize the property, they seize the money, and they resell it and they make money. They seize drugs. They never burn cocaine because cocaine and heroin is worth more per ounce than gold, so they put it right back in our communities and make a profit off of that. All the tickets and, and drunk driving tickets and um, possession tickets and all this makes the government and local governments a lot of money. Um, paraphernalia, every time I go to the store I see um, marijuana pipes and all this other different stuff. They make money that way. They make money by coming up with these drug treatment programs, by the way, which are for black people. Um, they make these drug programs that don't really work, but they make tons of money off of that. Um, and, you know, they, they have taken drug money and taken over co- uh, countries off um, off money they made from us. So um, I don't see that white people are going to stop drugs anytime soon. And what I like about this book, this, what it, whatever he's talking about with the drugs that happened back in the 40s, is all relevant today. Even They use, even use the same drugs. And the same thing happens. So um, I like this book. This is the third time that I've read it, and um, I get something new from it every time I read it. But I really think that drug peace um, is very important when we talk about racism, white supremacy. And this is one way we cannot, we can stop financing our destruction. And that's all I have to say. I meet my line. Uh, other folks with us have uh, comments they wanted to get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, Gus, how you doing? Thomas Smith from New York. Had all the calls. Um, had a um, few observations. Wasn't it the friend that um, was standing over the, the white guy pouring talcum powder? It wasn't Malcolm X, right? Uh, correct. Um, I think that was Rudy that gave that answer. Yeah, Rudy. Yeah. 
Well, when I heard that part, man, it was like, uh, as you always say, a cynical African moment. You know, it was like, oh, these people, you know, just pour a talcum powder and he comes. I mean, I mean well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but that's just disgusting. Um, um, yeah, the book is, um, you know, a lot of the same patterns and things I see still going on today. And, um, you know, the, um, the section at the beginning, you know, is uh, with um, Yoko, um, um, I can't pronounce Yuri her name. But, our you know, actually, that was her granddaughter. Yeah, that was her granddaughter. Yeah, I, I know. I was about to say, you know, it was, I, it was good to hear because you know you don't see a lot of Asians today. You know, um, seem like they're they're too interested in what what our problems are. So it was good to hear Asian woman, you know, um, pretty much sounding like an activist and um, you know, very uh, very in tune to what's going on in the black community. And I'll I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. There's, um, I guess what was on my mind while I was listening, especially about the whole tackle powder thing and the dude got off like that. I was like, I wonder, I wonder why they didn't put that in the movie. You know, um, I guess they didn't have the time to put that in there or whatever. But, it's like um, a whole lot of sexual perversion by white people in this, in this book, um, especially when when the the madam when he was in New York, you know, um, the lady that used to have white guys who wanna who wanna get beat and stuff like that, and the the gay, I guess I'm calling it gay, but the gay white man who wants a black person, black male to pull talcum powder to get off. It just, I don't think it would have been, I don't think we, Malcolm X would have been in the movie theater. They would have put all that stuff in there. So that's probably why they left it out. I don't know. But I didn't have much to say other than that. And so I'll, I'll pick my line and continue listening. The, uh, it's not, it's not as prevalent as it is in the book. That's why uh, I'd said, I think last week that about two years ago, uh, I was talking to someone uh, off the air uh, about the incorrectness of sexual intercourse with whites. And I referenced this book. I said, he, uh, Minister Malcolm talks about it over and over again. That's one of the dominant themes of the book. And it's certainly, uh, we are about a quarter of the way, or I guess a little beyond a quarter, uh, a quarter of the way through the book. Um, and it's, it is a huge thing of the first portion. I'd say it's, it's in my view, it's at least one of the top uh, three, maybe even one of the top two themes, uh, the first third or so of the book um, that, I mean, he's even talking about that before he even gets to New York where this was an issue, even in Lansing uh, where, you know, the white people would come and dance and and all that other stuff, but it's not given the same prevalence uh, as the book through this part, but that's uh, specifically Rudy talking about, uh, this old crusty white guy getting off with the talcum powder thing. He does mention it in the film. It's just not dramatized. So you don't get to see all that. Um, and I think they do have a scene where Laura, she's become 
uh, a prostitute and she's about to perform oral sex on a white man. And uh, obviously they have Sophia's character uh, in there. But uh, I mean, so it's not avoided completely. It's just not given the same intensity and it's not dramatized as much uh, as the text does. But Rudy does uh, verbalize uh, what you heard uh, this week uh, about the talcum powder portion. Um, anybody else that we missed hadn't got an opportunity to share yet have anything they wanted to make sure they got in? Okay. Uh, in that same vein, uh, where we ended at last week, uh, guess this is chapter seven, kind of the end of chapter seven, uh, where I said, I don't think, I don't think this is accurate. Uh, even I think Mr. Demery, where he said, uh, that he kind of threw shorty under the bus and talking about, you know, how he was drooling at the mouth for these white women and blah, blah, blah. And he's got a white woman right there uh, with him, Sophia, that he's been rolling with her the whole time. Uh, But that section from last week where I said, uh, well, I'll read from the book. The irony is that those white women had no more respect for those Negroes than white men have had for the Negro women they have been using since slavery. And in turn, and in turn, Negroes have no respect for whites. They get into bed with. I know the way I felt about Sophia, who still came to New York whenever I called her. Now, uh, I said last week that I don't think that's true on <laughs> that. I don't I don't think the last portion of it anyway, that's specifically what I'm keying in on that that black people, male and female, don't have any respect for these white people that they are sexually involved with. I said last week that I just I don't think that's true. And just looking at, you know, listening to what has been said this week and not extrapolating, you know, my own definitions for respect and all that. Uh, True. What does he mean when he says respect? But I'm just looking at what I'm reading. Nothing about this sounds like these black people. Uh, didn't care about the white folks that they were having sex with or wanted to have sex with or whatever were attracted to nothing about this seems to me that they didn't uh, have any quote unquote respect for them. And I would just read uh, that passage. This is chapter eight, where he says it happened that Shorty was between white women when one night Sophia brought to the house her 17 year old sister. I never saw anything like the way that Shorty and nearly excuse me. I never saw anything like the way that she and Shorty nearly jumped for each other. For him, she wasn't only a white girl, but a young white girl. For her, he wasn't only a Negro, but a Negro musician. In look, she was a younger version of Sophia who still turned heads. Sometimes I take the two girls to Negro places where Shorty played. Negroes showed 32 teeth apiece as soon as they saw the white girls. They would come over to your booth or your table. They would stand there and drool. And Shorty was no better. He'd stand up. He'd stand up there playing and watching that young girl waiting for him and waving at him and winking. As soon as the set was over, he'd practically run over people getting down to our table. Again, to me, nothing about that suggests that uh, Shorty didn't really respect this white girl uh, and or the other black people that are drooling. And and this is just victimization, but drooling over these uh, different white chicks. I could be in error, but uh, I will stick by what I said last week. And this week has just provided further evidence uh, of what I'm saying. I also thought uh, it was uh, profound and, and people talking about trends where he's talking about all these musicians when he talks about how shorty he was trying to look out for him because he he really wasn't making any money. And then he goes back to all these musicians that and man for Lady Day, uh, Billie Holiday. Wow. Um, I think there have been a lot more reports. There's a, a white guy, a racist suspect who has a new book 
Uh, it's called Chasing the Scream, where he spends a significant amount of time talking about the uh, really disgraceful and racist manner uh, in which uh, Billie Holiday was arrested and jailed. Uh, and she wasn't given all those wonderful treatment options. They didn't send her to some opulent uh, treatment place where she could have been rehabilitated. And, you know, let's let's treat this as an illness. It was no, you're a fiendish Negro and you're going to be locked up and, and the whole nine and just, you know, what a. Uh, despicable and, and terroristic way to treat uh, someone who was so talented and, and who had done so many entertained so many white folks. But um, he talks about how these black musicians, even the people that had a big name, presumably like Billie Holiday and all these other folks that he knew that they weren't really making any money. And nothing about that has changed at all <laughs> when you're talking about uh, black musicians, black entertainers uh, today. You see so many examples of that, professional athletes included. Uh, where these folks, you know, you see them on TV or they've sold, uh, so they say, a lot of music and made a lot of money. And then white folks take it all back and it ends up that these racists who uh, dominate and terrorize the uh, entertainment and record industry, they have all the money. And these black entertainers uh, end up with nothing after their, you know, few moments of uh, being a top hit or what have you or their athletic careers are over. They're down and out broke and just another nigger, as we've uh, shared on the program before. Uh, the last comment I'll get in. Uh, before I nab some of the other folks who haven't had a chance to share uh, at the beginning, I think this is chapter eight when he's kind of describing uh, what led to his exodus from New York. And he goes into detail and talking about, you know, why, the, what the stakes were uh, when he had his conflict with uh, West Indian Archie. Uh, this is chapter eight where he says, uh, I've since thought that West Indian Archie may have been trying to scare me into running to save both his face and his life. It may be that's why he was high. No one knew that I hadn't killed anyone, but no one who knew me, including myself, would doubt that I'd kill. I can't guess what might have happened, but under the code, if West Indian Archie hadn't gone out the door after having humiliated me as he had, I'd have had to follow him out. We'd have shot it out in the street. Uh, just for me, that really screamed uh, Mr. Fuller in his code book about show offism. <laughs> it seems I think I've heard Mr. Fuller say that we kind of have a, a very raggedy code in terms of how we uh, exist under conditions of white terrorism. And, and to have this code that you can't be humiliated by another black person uh, and that you got to save face and all that. To me, it just it just show offism. I got to show off for these other black people so that they think I'm tough and and I'm worried about their opinion of me at the bottom of a slave ship uh, that really, in my opinion, is about the size of it. Uh, and just in the way that they were responding in this book and, and really to them to a large degree, the way that we continue uh, to respond to the system uh, of white supremacy. Uh, and I think just to, to echo what Mr. Demery Ford said earlier, uh, when he's hiding under the bed, uh, that code doesn't apply to racists. Uh, they can do whatever they want, come in, rape the whole community and beat you up, the police and all that. You don't have that same code about uh, I'm not going to be humiliated. No white person is going to come in here and humiliate me. Uh, it's going to be somebody's last. We don't have that same code. Uh, with whites. We just have that same code with other victims who are in a much weaker position, but that really stood out uh, and really trying to get away from that, trying to show off and uh, impress uh, other victims uh, of racism, white supremacy uh, with regards to our behavior. Um, I will stop right there. Uh, anybody on the line who has not shared yet uh, have anything that they want to make sure they got in? 
Um, can I be heard? You're a little low if you could speak up. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I wanted to uh, comment on a couple of things, if I may. Um, uh, Gus, um, you um, revisited the issue of respect. This is deep. And um, I agreed with you at the time that the discussion came up the last time. And I wasn't going to belabor the point because I thought maybe it might be, you know, kind of like taken away from the book. But it, it kind of um, concerned me that, you know, that to be able to see that obviously, you know, respect speaking um, generically in terms of how most people use it simply means what we value, right? And I think that, um, you know, um, uh, putting things into context in terms of how Malcolm's um, history uh, at the time, how old he was, recognizing that um, he hadn't really had, um, okay, education, I don't mean education in kind of formal sense, but, um, you know, developmentally, where was he in terms of all of this activity? And he was not necessarily all that he became when he was telling the story. So, you know, not to, you know, I say be the dead horse or beg the question, as it were, but um, that this white female that he was with, that he um, disrespected, um, you know, um, the, the black female who was all that, you know, standard, um, was, re- was a respectful person who respected him, admired him, and that she was even willing to defy, um, you know, her um, um, relative in order to see him, et cetera. And the fact that Malcolm said he had an affinity for his sister, he loved his sister, Ella, but he even, you know, in the same context, disrespected her in favor of this um no, it's white um, female. So um, I just think that it would kind of be, um, obviously this relationship he had with this, um, you know, with the white female um, has really affected his ego, and he did have something beyond just a uh, sexual attraction for her. And then generally people have a sexual attraction. It is in, in some respects an ego thing as well. Um, so I want to say that. And then um, in reference to um, the issue about drug use, um, and uh, what is it? I never use drugs. When I come in on drugs, people sometimes, even like clients would, would say, which we are not allowed to say, you don't get personal information with her, but just as a disclosure, people sometimes say, well, you never use drugs, so you don't know what it's about. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I don't have to have a heart attack to understand um, how that works. And so I'm saying that to say that, you know, um, in my experience, because uh, I have spent um, several decades and a lot of training and working with people that have substance abuse use, and why never use? Because if I see you going over the cliff, why should I? But, you know, so I can have a, a, a perspective similar to um, what Dr. Francis Chris Wells had. I mean, some, you can see things that this person who got so acclimated to the drug use, they just can't see. You know, it's kind of like smelling somebody, you know, when they uh, have been in a, you know, um, environment where they, you know, um, 
they can't sit on the shelves because they get acclimated to it. So the point I want to make in reference to that is that, you know, even when a person stops using drugs, and I don't want to get off of the subject of the book per se, but I think that when we're listening to this book and we're studying Malcolm's history, that we have to kind of like put it, all of that in context that even when he is sharing, um, you know, uh, in writing this book and in relating his history uh, to his co-author in this book, that he um, is still impacted by, um, you know, his lifestyle. And it doesn't all come out. Just when you stop using drugs, you still have the impact manifest in your behavior, you know. And, um, yeah, that's kind of like um, what I wanted to say. <laughs> Uh, unless we missed anybody, uh, I don't see uh, any hands up of folks who haven't commented. Any of the folks uh, who are on the line with us have anything they want to get in? I um, Good evening, everyone. It, it's Karma in Texas. Um, I, I was thinking that, you know, he said, he, I'm pretty sure he said that he'd never seen West Indian Archie High. And then he said, and then he then he said, you know, but he is high. And the next time he said, he's definitely high, but he's not high on on alcohol or anything. He didn't know what it was. So I'm thinking that West Indian Archie was, was taking, um, I don't know, maybe he was given a drug, maybe his medication was changed or whatever, but he wasn't able to keep those numbers intact in his head because he obviously was taking something that he was unused to taking. So, and I think that that might have been the issue because it was clearly a new, a new presentation for West Indian Archie, and and also, you know, it's just um, I always wonder if if it's the drugs that I, I guess the drugs just shrink your world down to where it is. It is so tiny, you know. I mean, it's just so tiny. His world is 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 all geared around the next card game, the next drugs, you know, the next day, noon, fifteen minutes. You know, I mean, you hear the stuff in the beginning where he's sending a postcard from from um, Egypt and another postcard, you know, from where is it? Is it? Was it China? I mean, his world is so large. I just always marvel at how tiny, tiny, tiny your world gets when you're on drugs. And I think it's not just drugs, chemical drugs. I think it's anything. I mean, I, I think it's like, even if you're addicted to white supremacy, you know, it's just, your world, whatever you're addicted to, it makes your world extremely tiny. Um, and the, the last thing, what was it? What was it? Cause I'm driving. The last thing was, no, it's going to happen this way. It'll come back to me because I couldn't write it down. Okay, that that was it, I think. Oh, can I add another comment? Yes, ma'am. Um, I, now I apologize if maybe somebody else brought this up um, early because um, I kind of came in kind of late. But, um... And then maybe just, I don't know, if you think so, I mean, I won't go into because maybe you think that might be more appropriate for another episode, whatever. But the issue of, since you put, like, sexuality and understanding how um, 
how sexuality, human sexuality affects our behavior. Uh, you know, uh, like in instances where we know that um, uh, young children, when they first get exposed to, um, you know, sexual experience, and it doesn't actually have to even be involved. It can be a certain type of touching, et cetera, that can affect a person. Malcolm was, well, he was a teenager. I mean, I, um, when he, um, you know, actually um, got involved, apparently, uh, sexually, unless I'm mistaken. And, you know, you don't have to have to have respect and or feelings for a person to get involved with them sexually. But when you do, that does um, affect your behavior. And, and kind of like, like what, what Carmen says, a, a lot of things affect our behavior, um, whether, you know, biochemically, et cetera. I just, that's very interesting. I think that's something for us to understand when we talk about not having sex with um with white people because it definitely does affect people and it's more than just reproduction. I think that's really one area, not just in having sex with white people, but I could be mistaken, but in, in my experience and conversations, I think there's something that we, maybe everybody, we don't really understand sexuality the way we need to because um, I, I went back and took myself a couple of courses because I felt like really not just about reproduction or whatever, because I was working with so many sick people. I'm like, this is kind of like making me sick listening to some of this stuff. I'm still trying to understand a lot of it. And I would almost like get, well, at first get, even feel kind of ill at some of the things that I heard. I, I mean, one of the professors was telling us, for example, that, um, you know, that as far as sexuality is concerned, it's, it's a social thing. Now, this is a black male, by the way, I should say. This is a black professor. It's not... European whatever, but I don't know if he had a white mind. He didn't come across that way. But anyway, um, that, you know, if you had a male and a female, and I guess at the time, I guess you could say any two people together, that regardless of what their genetic relationship was, that eventually they would have sex with one another. I don't know. But the point I'm trying to say in the context of Malcolm is how that affect him as he got more involved sexually or initially his sexual experience and, and ideology or inclination towards sex was, you know, having this white female image that especially black males seem to get, you know, and it really could really impact his thinking. Obviously it did. Any of the other folks uh, who are with us have comments that they uh, want to get in? Yes, could I say a couple more things first? Yes, sir. Okay, I wanted to bring up the fact that uh, uh, Red was using animal metaphors when early in the book he uh, referred to uh, blacks as vultures. And in this reading, I think he mentioned uh, predatory birds. Uh, his addiction cause, you know, was up to like, between, I guess, 25 and $30 a day, you know, and smoking four-packs four of cigarettes. I think that was, uh, that was pretty serious. And uh, last but not least, that uh, I was suspecting that the uh, white women would get off light, you know, because I watch uh, Snap on TV. <laughs> it just amazes me when it comes to white females, what they can actually get away with and how light sentences they get for the same crimes that 
people get two life terms. Some of them get uh, probated sentences. And it was also interesting that uh, everybody was concerned about uh, Shorty and uh, Red being with the white women, uh, discounting the robberies that they had done. They were more concerned with uh, blacks being with the white women. So I'll mute my line. Thanks. Uh, any of the other folks with us have anything else they want to get in before we get to the uh, second audio segment? Uh, your voice is your voice is low, and then it's a lot of background noise. So if you could speak up, or oh, that's sorry, just just got me heard a little better. That's better. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's kind of kind of no thing struck me what he said. Um. When he was talking about um, his, his father, Shouter, um, he said that Shouter couldn't keep that Shouter couldn't keep the white one because he he treated him too nice, and uh, he said regardless of the color, if you treat a woman too nice, she'll get bored with you real quick. And I don't, I don't know what he said. That's how he thought then. Or that's how he, he still felt as the Malcolm E. Curran was when he was speaking to Alex Hayden. But um, I don't know. I kind of agree with him on that, though. Even if regardless with what point of his life he was speaking that. But, um, yeah, I just that, that stood out to me when he said that. And it's kind of, you know, the same same way today it seems like you know but um you know quote mary j mary j Blige song me and mr ron get along so good but um i'm i'm using my line i just that right there stuck out to me uh, one other quick thought i will get in uh last few minutes before we get to the second audio segment um i guess the the one just in terms of anti-blackness uh i think we've heard at least two i think that he mentioned a black officer in new york uh that they had beef with and this guy ended up uh getting arrested and having to uh be placed in greater confinement as well but i thought it was interesting he talked about uh up in boston there was uh, i think he said that there were two uh black detectives uh in boston and uh, he didn't like this uh, one black detective uh, in particular, I think he said specifically uh, reading, he said Boston at this time had two Negro detectives. Ever since I had come back on the Roxbury scene, one of these detectives, a dark brown fellow named Turner, had never been able to stand me. And it was mutual. He talked about what he would do to me. And I had promptly put an answer back on the wire. I knew from the way he began to act that he heard it. Everyone knew that I carried guns and he did have sense enough to know that I wouldn't hesitate to use them and excuse to use them and on him detective or not. Uh, I just thought that was uh, significant. I don't hear uh, these type of uh, got some sort of of running beef or feud uh, with white enforcement officials, (laughs) just, uh, black people, uh, the anti-blackness again, uh, apparently both ways because this detective had a problem uh, with him. I thought the point about the uh, smallness uh, of his world, I think that's very applicable now as well uh, where uh, black people where we will fight and brawl over uh, very small 
territory. Uh, this is my street. This is my corner. This is my block, that sort of thing. Uh, and towards the end, where he's writing from all over the world and doing these <laughs> global travels uh, and, you know, talking to all these people on the continent and, and worldwide, meeting with Shea uh, Guevara, talking about Patrice Lumumba, just uh, his world was massive. Uh, and I think that should be the case under the system of white supremacy, just trying to pay attention to things locally, nationally, globally. Um, that being said, unless somebody had anything quick they wanted to get in uh, before we move to the second audio segment. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, um, to, to I was just thinking about what you said earlier about the the show offism and uh, what you were just saying about you know my block and my my corner and all that, and that's a, the direct result of white supremacy. Um, when you look at their history, it's always been the the dual, you know, the Coliseum, um, feudalism, and you know, even um, modern times, you know, the cowboys slicks, the showdown, the show off, you know, you know, you're going to meet up in the square in the middle of the street, you know, see who could draw first. And I think that, you know, it's just us emulating um, the master, you know, um, we just emulate him and um, being that we know we can't get away with doing it to them, we're doing it to each other. Yep, 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 yep. I would agree uh, with that. Uh, I also thought the uh, drug consumption was uh, astronomical. Even if it wasn't drugs, four packs of cigarettes a day is astronomical. Um, and just the, the ramifications, economically the ramifications. Uh, I mean, talk about financing your uh, oppressor, uh, much less the uh, health ramifications for someone who is known uh, for speaking. I cannot begin to imagine if he had continued uh, that rate of consumption uh, throat cancer or lung cancer or you know whatever else uh, having a just a horrific impact on somebody uh, who did so much just by being able to speak and talk about racism white supremacy uh, that being said uh, we will get to the second audio segment uh, if you didn't get to share had other thoughts jot them down make a note and uh, we'll make time during the second audio segment uh, again we're picking up chapter 10 Satan context of white supremacy chapter 10 satan surely didn't know what the word concurrently meant somehow lansing to boston bus fare had been scraped up by shorty's old mother son read the book of revelations and pray to god she kept telling shorty visiting him and once me while we awaited our sentencing Shorty had read the Bible's revelation pages. He had actually gotten down on his knees, praying like some Negro Baptist deacon. Then we were looking up at the judge in Middlesex County Court. Our, I think, 14 counts of crime were committed in that county. Shorty's mother was sitting, sobbing, with her head bowing up and down to her Jesus over near Ella and Reginald. Shorty was the first of us called to stand up. Count one, eight to ten years. Count two, eight to ten years. Count three, and finally, the sentences to run concurrently. Shorty, sweating so hard that his black face looked as though it had been greased, and not understanding the word concurrently, had counted in his head to probably over a hundred years. He cried out. He began slumping. The bailiffs had to catch and support him. In eight to ten seconds, 
Shorty had turned as atheist as I had been to start with. I got ten years. The girls got one to five years in the women's reformatory at Framingham, Massachusetts. This was in February 1946. I wasn't quite 21. I had not even started shaving. They took Shorty and me, handcuffed together, to the Charlestown State Prison. I can't remember any of my prison numbers. That seems surprising, even after the dozen years since I've been out of prison. Because your number in prison became part of you. You never heard your name, only a number. On all of your clothing, every item was your number, stenciled. It grew stenciled on your brain. Any person who claims to have deep feeling for other human beings should think a long, long time before he votes to have other men kept behind bars, caged. I'm not saying there shouldn't be prisons, but there shouldn't be bars. Behind bars, a man never reforms. He will never forget. He never will get completely over the memory of the bars. After he gets out, his mind tries to erase the experience, but he can't. I've talked with numerous former convicts. It has been very interesting to me to find that all of our minds had blotted away many details of years in prison. But in every case, he will tell you that he can't forget those bars. As a fish, prison slang for a new inmate, at Charlestown, I was physically miserable and as evil-tempered as a snake, being suddenly without drugs. The cells didn't have running water. The prison had been built in 1805, in Napoleon's day and was even styled after the Bastille. In the dirty, cramped cell, I could lie on my cot and touch both walls. The toilet was a covered pail. I don't care how strong you are, you can't stand having to smell a whole cell row of defecation. The prison psychologist interviewed me, and he got called every filthy name I could think of, and the prison chaplain got called worse. My first letter, I remember, was from my religious brother, Philbert, in Detroit, telling me his... Holiness Church was going to pray for me. I scrawled him a reply I'm ashamed to think of today. Ella was my first visitor. I remember seeing her catch herself, then try to smile at me, now in the faded dungarees stenciled with my number. Neither of us could find much to say until I wished she hadn't come at all. The guards with guns watched about fifty convicts and visitors. I've heard scores of new prisoners swearing back in their cells that when free, their first act would be to waylay those visiting room guards. Hatred often focused on them. I first got high in Charlestown on nutmeg. My cellmate was among at least a hundred nutmeg men who, for money or cigarettes, bought from kitchen worker inmates penny matchboxes full of stolen nutmeg. I grabbed a box as though it were a pound of heavy drugs. Stirred into a glass of cold water, a penny matchbox full of nutmeg had the kick of three or four reefers. With some money sent by Ella, I was finally able to buy stuff for better highs from guards in the prison. I got reefers, nembutol, and benzedrine. Smuggling to prisoners was the guards' sideline. Every prison's inmates know that's how guards make most of their living. I served a total of seven years in prison. Now, when I try to separate that first year plus that I spent at Charlestown, it runs all together in a memory of nutmeg and the other semi-drugs, of cursing guards, throwing things out of my cell, balking in the lines, dropping my tray in the dining hall, refusing to answer my number, claiming I forgot it, and things like that. I preferred the solitary that this behavior brought me. I would pace for hours like a caged leopard, viciously cursing aloud to myself, and my favorite targets were the Bible and God. 
but there was a legal limit to how much time one could be kept in solitary. Eventually, the men in the cell block had a name for me, Satan, because of my anti-religious attitude. The first man I met in prison who made any positive impression on me, whatever, was a fellow inmate, Bimby. I met him in 1947 at Charlestown. He was a light, kind of red-complexioned Negro, as I was, about my height, and he had freckles. Bimby, an old-time burglar, had been in many prisons. In the licensed plate shop where our gang worked, he operated the machine that stamped out the numbers. I was along the conveyor belt where the numbers were painted. Bimby was the first Negro convict I'd known who didn't respond to, What you know, Daddy? Often, after we'd done our day's license plate quota, we would sit around, perhaps 15 of us, and listen to Bimby. Normally, white prisoners wouldn't think of listening to Negro prisoners' opinions on anything, but guards, even, would wander over close to hear Bimby on any subject. He would have a cluster of people riveted, often on odd subjects you never would think of. He would prove to us, dipping into the science of human behavior, that the only difference between us and outside people was that we had been caught. He liked to talk about historical events and figures. When he talked about the history of Concord, where I was to be transferred later, you would have thought he was hired by the Chamber of Commerce, and I wasn't the first inmate who had never heard of Thoreau until Bimby expounded upon him. Bimby was known as the library's best customer. What fascinated me with him most of all was that he was the first man I had ever seen command total respect with his words. Bimby seldom said much to me. He was gruff to individuals, but I sensed he liked me. What made me seek his friendship was when I heard him discuss religion. I considered myself beyond atheism. I was Satan. But Bimby put the atheist philosophy in a framework, so to speak. That ended my vicious cursing attacks. My approach sounded so weak alongside his, and he never used a foul word. Out of the blue one day, Bimby told me flatly, as was his way, that I had some brains, if I'd used them. I'd wanted his friendship, not that kind of advice. I might have cursed another convict, but nobody cursed Bimby. He told me I should take advantage of the prison correspondence courses and the library. When I had finished the eighth grade back in Mason, Michigan, that was the last time I thought of studying anything that didn't have some hustle purpose. And the streets had erased everything I'd ever learned in school. I didn't know a verb from a house. My sister Hilda had written a suggestion that, if possible in prison, I should study English and penmanship. She'd barely been able to read a couple of picture postcards I'd sent her when I was selling reefers on the road. So, feeling I had time on my hands, I did begin a correspondence course in English. When the mimeographed listings of available books passed from cell to cell, I would put my number next to titles that appealed to me which weren't already taken. Through the correspondence exercises and lessons, some of the mechanics of grammar gradually began to come back to me. After about a year, I guess, I could write a decent and legible letter. About then, too, influenced by having heard Bimby often explain word derivations, I quietly started another correspondence course. In Latin, under Bimby's tutelage, too, I'd got myself some little cell block swindles going. For packs of cigarettes, I beat just about anyone at Domino's. I always had several cartons of cigarettes in my cell. They were, in prison, nearly as valuable a medium of exchange as money. I booked cigarette and money bets on fights and ball games. I'll never forget the prison sensation created that day in April 1947 when Jackie Robinson was brought up to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie Robinson had then his most fanatic fan in me. When he played, my ear was glued to the radio, and no game ended without my refiguring his average up through his last turn at bat. One day in 1948, 
after I'd been transferred to Concord Prison, my brother Philbert, who was forever joining something, wrote me this time that he had discovered the natural religion for the black man. He belonged now, he said, to something called the Nation of Islam. He said I should pray to Allah for deliverance. I wrote Philbert a letter which, although in improved English, was worse than my earlier reply to his news that I was being prayed for by His Holiness Church. When a letter from Reginald arrived, I never dreamed of associating the two letters, although I knew that Reginald had been spending a lot of time with Wilfred, Hilda, and Philbert in Detroit. Reginald's letter was newsy, and also it contained this instruction. Malcolm, don't eat any more pork, and don't smoke any more cigarettes. I'll show you how to get out of prison. My automatic response was to think he'd come upon some way I could work a hype on the penal authorities. I went to sleep and woke up, trying to figure what kind of a hype it could be. Something psychological, such as my act with the New York Draft Board? Could I, after going without pork and smoking no cigarettes for a while, claim some physical trouble that could bring about my release? Get out of prison. The words hung in the air around me. I wanted out so badly. I wanted in the worst way to consult with Bimby about it. But something big, instinct said, you spilled to nobody. Quitting cigarettes wasn't going to be too difficult. I'd been conditioned by days in solitary without cigarettes. Whatever this chance was, I wasn't going to fluff it. After I read that letter, I finished the pack I then had open. I haven't smoked another cigarette to this day since 1948. It was about three or four days later when pork was served for the noon meal. I wasn't even thinking about pork when I took my seat at the long table. Sit, grab, gobble, stand, file out. That was the Emily Post in prison eating. When the meat platter was passed to me, I didn't even know what the meat was. Usually you couldn't tell anyway. But it was suddenly as though, don't eat any more pork, flashed on a screen before me. I hesitated with the platter in midair. Then I passed it along to the inmate waiting next to me. He began serving himself. Abruptly he stopped. I remember him turning, looking surprised at me. I said to him, I don't eat pork. The platter then kept on down the table. It was the funniest thing, the reaction, and the way that it spread. In prison, where so little breaks the monotonous routine, the smallest thing causes a commotion of talk. It was being mentioned all over the cell block by night that Satan didn't eat pork. It made me very proud in some odd way. One of the universal images of the Negro, in prison and out, was that he couldn't do without pork. It made me feel good to see that my not eating it had especially startled the white convicts. Later I would learn, when I had read and studied Islam a good deal, that unconsciously my first pre-Islamic submission had been manifested. I had experienced for the first time the Muslim teaching, if you will take one step toward Allah, Allah will take two steps toward you. My brothers and sisters in Detroit and Chicago had all become converted to what they were being taught was the natural religion for the black man, of which Philbert had written to me. They all prayed for me to become converted while I was in prison. But after Philbert reported my vicious reply, they discussed what was the best thing to do. They decided that Reginald, the latest convert, the one to whom I felt closest, would best know how to approach me, since he knew me so well in the street life. Independently of all this, my sister Ella had been steadily working to get me transferred to the Norfolk, Massachusetts prison colony, which was an experimental rehabilitation jail. In other prisons, convicts often said that if you had the right money or connections, 
you could get transferred to this colony whose penal policy sounded almost too good to be true. Somehow, Ella's efforts on my behalf were successful in late 1948, and I was transferred to Norfolk. The colony was, comparatively, a heaven in many respects. It had flushing toilets, there were no bars, only walls, and within the walls you had far more freedom. There was plenty of fresh air to breathe. It was not in a city. There were 24 house units, 50 men living in each unit, if memory serves me correctly. This would mean that the colony had a total of around 1,200 inmates. Each house had three floors, and, greatest blessing of all, each inmate had his own room. About 15% of the inmates were Negroes, distributed about five to nine Negroes in each house. Norfolk Prison Colony represented the most enlightened form of prison that I'd ever heard of. In place of the atmosphere of malicious gossip, perversion, grafting, hateful guards, there was more relative culture, as culture is interpreted in prisons. A high percentage of the Norfolk prison colony inmates went in for intellectual things, group discussions, debates, and such. Instructors for the educational rehabilitation programs came from Harvard, Boston University, and other educational institutions in the area. The visiting rules, far more lenient than other prisons, permitted visitors almost every day and allowed them to stay two hours. You had your choice of sitting alongside your visitor or facing each other. Norfolk Prison Colony's library was one of its outstanding features. A millionaire named Parkhurst had willed his library there. He'd probably been interested in the rehabilitation program. History and religions were his special interests. Thousands of his books were on the shelves, and in the back were boxes and crates full, for which there wasn't space on the shelves. At Norfolk, we could actually go into the library, with permission, walk up and down the shelves, pick books. There were hundreds of old volumes, some of them probably quite rare. I read aimlessly until I learned to read selectively, with a purpose. I hadn't heard from Reginald in a good while after I got to Norfolk Prison Colony, but I'd come in there not smoking cigarettes or eating pork when it was served. That caused a bit of eyebrow raising. Then a letter from Reginald telling me when he was coming to see me. By the time he came, I was really keyed up to hear the hype he was going to explain. Reginald knew how my street hustler mind operated. That's why his approach was so effective. He'd always dressed well, and now when he came to visit was carefully groomed. I was aching with wanting the no-pork-and-cigarettes riddle answered, but he talked about the family, what was happening in Detroit, Harlem the last time he was there. I have never pushed anyone to tell me anything before he's ready. The offhand way Reginald talked and acted made me know that something big was coming. He said finally, as though it had just happened to come into his mind, Malcolm, if a man knew every imaginable thing that there is to know, who would he be? Back in Harlem, he'd often like to get at something through this kind of indirection. It had often irritated me, because my way had always been direct. I looked at him. Well, he would have to be some kind of a god, Reginald said. There's a man who knows everything. I asked, who's that? God is a man. Reginald said. His real name is Allah. Allah. That word came back to me from Filbert's letter. It was my first hint of any connection. But Reginald went on. He said that God had 360 degrees of knowledge. He said the 360 degrees represented the sum total of knowledge. To say I was confused is an understatement. I don't have to remind you of the background against which I sat hearing my brother Reginald talk like this. I just listened, knowing he was taking his time and putting me on to something. And if somebody is trying to put you on to something, 
You need to listen. The devil has only 33 degrees of knowledge, known as masonry, Reginald said. I can so specifically remember the exact phrases since later I was going to teach them so many times to others. The devil uses his masonry to rule other people. He told me that this god had come to America and that he made himself known to a man named Elijah, a black man just like us. This god had let Elijah know, Reginald said, that the devil's time was up. I didn't know what to think. I just listened. The devil is also a man, Reginald said. What do you mean? With a slight movement of his head, Reginald indicated some white inmates and their visitors talking as we were across the room. Them, he said. The white man is the devil. He told me that all whites knew they were devils, especially Masons. I never will forget. My mind was involuntarily flashing across the entire spectrum of white people I'd ever known, and for some reason it stopped upon Jaime, the Jew, who had been so good to me. Reginald, a couple of times, had gone out with me to that Long Island bootlegging operation to buy and bottle up the bootleg liquor for Jaime. I said, without any exception, without any exception. What about Jaime? What is it if I let you make $500 to let me make 10000 After Reginald left, I thought, I thought, thought. I couldn't make of it head or tail or middle. The white people I'd known marched before my mind's eye. From the start of my life, the state white people always in our house after the other whites I didn't know had killed my father. The white people who kept calling my mother crazy to her face and before me and my brothers and sisters until she finally was taken off by white people to the Kalamazoo Asylum. The white judge and others who had split up the children, the swirlings, the other whites around Mason. White youngsters I was in school there with, and the teachers. The one who told me in the eighth grade to be a carpenter, because thinking of being a lawyer was foolish for a Negro. My head swam with the parading faces of white people, the ones in Boston, in the white-only dances at the Roseland Ballroom where I shined their shoes, at the Parker House where I took their dirty plates back to the kitchen, the railroad crewmen and passengers, Sophia, the whites in New York City, the cops, the white criminals I dealt with, the whites who piled into the Negro speakeasies for a taste of Negro soul, the white women who wanted Negro men, the men I'd steered to the black specialty sex they wanted, the fence back in Boston and his ex-con representative, Boston cops, Sophia's husband's friend and her husband whom I'd never seen but knew so much about, Sophia's sister, the Jew jeweler who'd helped trap me, the social workers, the Middlesex County court people, the judge who gave me ten years, the prisoners I'd known, the guards, and the officials. A celebrity among the Norfolk prison colony inmates was a rich, older fellow, a paralytic called John. He had killed his baby, one of those mercy killings. He was a proud, big-shot type, always reminding everyone that he was a 33rd-degree Mason and what powers Masons had, that only Masons ever had been U.S. presidents, that Masons in distress could secretly signal to judges and other Masons in powerful positions. I kept thinking about what Reginald had said. I wanted to test it with John. He worked in a soft job in the prison school. I went over there. John, I said, how many degrees in a circle? He said, 
360. I drew a square. How many degrees in that? He said, 360. I asked him, was 360 degrees then the maximum of degrees in anything? He said, yes. I said, well, why is it that masons go only to 33 degrees? He had no satisfactory answer. But for me, the answer was that masonry, actually, is only 33 degrees of the religion of Islam, which is the full projection forever denied to masons, although they know it exists. Reginald, when he came to visit me again in a few days, could gauge from my attitude the effect that his talking had had upon me. He seemed very pleased. Then, very seriously, he talked for two solid hours about the devil white man and the brainwashed black man. When Reginald left, he left me rocking with some of the first serious thoughts I'd ever had in my life. That the white man was fast losing his power to oppress and exploit the dark world. That the dark world was starting to rise to rule the world again, as it had before. That the white man's world was on the way down. It was on the way out. You don't even know who you are, Reginald had said. You don't even know. The white devil has hidden it from you that you are of a race of people of ancient civilizations and riches and gold and kings. You don't even know your true family name. You wouldn't recognize your true language if you heard it. You have been cut off by the devil white man from all true knowledge of your own kind. You've been a victim of the evil of the devil white man ever since he murdered and raped and stole you from your native land in the seeds of your forefathers. I began to receive at least two letters every day from my brothers and sisters in Detroit. My oldest brother, Wilfred, wrote, and his first wife, Bertha, the mother of his two children. Since her death, Wilfred has met and married his present wife, Ruth. Philbert wrote, and my sister Hilda, and Reginald visited, staying in Boston a while before he went back to Detroit, where he had been the most recent of them to be converted. They were all Muslims, followers of a man they described to me as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, a small, gentle man, whom they sometimes referred to as the Messenger of Allah. He was, they said, a black man like us. He had been born in America on a farm in Georgia. He had moved with his family to Detroit, and there had met a Mr. Wallace D. Fard, who he claimed was God in person. Mr. Wallace D. Fard had given to Elijah Muhammad Allah's message for the black people who were the lost found nation of Islam here in this wilderness of North America. All of them urged me to accept the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Reginald explained that pork was not eaten by those who worshipped in the religion of Islam, and not smoking cigarettes was a rule of the followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, because they did not take injurious things such as narcotics, tobacco, or liquor into their bodies. Over and over, I read and heard, the key to a Muslim is submission, the attunement of one toward Allah. And what they termed the true knowledge of the black man that was possessed by the followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was given shape for me in their lengthy letters, sometimes containing printed literature. The true knowledge, reconstructed much more briefly than I received it, was that history had been whitened in the white man's history books, and that the black man had been brainwashed for hundreds of years. Original man was black, 
in the continent called Africa where the human race had emerged on the planet Earth. The black man, original man, built great empires and civilizations and cultures while the white man was still living on all fours in caves. The devil white man, down through history out of his devilish nature, had pillaged, murdered, raped, and exploited every race of man not white. Human history's greatest crime was the traffic in black flesh when the devil white man went into Africa and murdered and kidnapped to bring to the West in chains, in slave ships, millions of black men, women, and children who were worked and beaten and tortured as slaves. The devil white man cut these black people off from all knowledge of their own kind and cut them off from any knowledge of their own language, religion, and past culture until the black man in America was the earth's only race of people who had absolutely no knowledge of his true identity. In one generation, the black slave women in America had been raped by the slave master white man until there had begun to emerge a homemade, handmade, brainwashed race that was no longer even of its true color, that no longer even knew its true family names. The slave master forced his family name upon this rape-mixed race, which the slave master began to call the Negro. This Negro was taught of his native Africa that it was peopled by heathen, black savages, swinging like monkeys from trees. This Negro accepted this along with every other teaching of the slave master that was designed to make him accept and obey and worship the white man. And where the religion of every other people on earth taught its believers of a God with whom they could identify, a God who at least looked like one of their own kind, the slave master injected his Christian religion into this Negro. This Negro was taught to worship an alien God having the same blonde hair, pale skin, and blue eyes as the slave master. This religion taught the Negro that black was a curse. It taught him to hate everything black, including himself. It taught him that everything white was good, to be admired, respected, and loved. It brainwashed this Negro to think he was superior if his complexion showed more of the white pollution of the slave master. This white man's Christian religion further deceived and brainwashed this Negro to always turn the other cheek and grin and scrape and bow and be humble and to sing and to pray and to take whatever was dished out by the devilish white man and to look for his pie in the sky and for his heaven in the hereafter while right here on earth the slave master white man enjoyed his heaven. Many a time I have looked back trying to assess just for myself my first reactions to all this. Every instinct of the ghetto jungle streets, every hustling fox and criminal wolf instinct in me, which would have scoffed at and rejected anything else, was struck numb. It was as though all of that life merely was back there, without any remaining effect or influence. I remember how, sometime later, reading the Bible in the Norfolk Prison Colony Library, I came upon... Then I read over and over, how Paul, on the road to Damascus, upon hearing the voice of Christ, was so smitten that he was knocked off his horse in a daze. I do not now, and I did not then, liken myself to Paul, but I do understand his experience. I have since learned, helping me to understand what then began to happen within me, that the truth can be quickly received, or received at all, only by the sinner who knows and admits that he's guilty of having sinned much. Stated another way, only guilt admitted 
accepts truth. The Bible again. The one people whom Jesus could not help were the Pharisees. They didn't feel they needed any help. The very enormity of my previous life's guilt prepared me to accept the truth. Not for weeks yet would I deal with the direct personal application to myself as a black man of the truth. It still was like a blinding light. Reginald left Boston and went back to Detroit. I would sit in my room and stare. At the dining room table I would hardly eat, only drink the water. I nearly starved. Fellow inmates, concerned, and guards, apprehensive, asked what was wrong with me. It was suggested that I visit the doctor, and I didn't. The doctor, advised, visited me. I don't know what his diagnosis was, probably that I was working on some act. I was going through the hardest thing, also the greatest thing, for any human being to do. To accept that which is already within you and around you. I learned later that my brothers and sisters in Detroit put together the money for my sister Hilda to come and visit me. She told me that when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was in Detroit, he would stay as a guest in my brother Wilfred's home, which was on McKay Street. Hilda kept urging me to write to Mr. Muhammad. He understood what it was to be in the white man's prison, she said, because he himself had not long before gotten out of the federal prison at Milan, Michigan, where he had served five years for evading the draft. Hilda said that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad came to Detroit to reorganize his temple number one, which had become disorganized during his prison time. But he lived in Chicago, where he was organizing and building his temple number two. It was Hilda who said to me, Would you like to hear how the white man came to this planet Earth? And she told me that key lesson of Mr. Elijah Muhammad's teachings, which I later learned was the demonology that every religion has, called Jacob's History. Right on, context of white supremacy, and that is where we will pick up next week. Uh, it's the next sentence is Elijah Muhammad teaches his followers that the, that first the moon separated from the earth, then the first humans, original man, were a black people. They founded the holy city of Mecca, but uh, that is for next week uh, session where we'll finish off chapter 10. Anywho, uh, for folks who would like to participate, the number to dial is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, again, that number 760-569-7676. The code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh we are moving swiftly uh we are more than a third of the way uh through the book i think next week we should hit the uh the halfway mark uh i'm very pleased <laughs> we are uh getting it done getting it done keeping our uh put on the gas uh to get through a uh, great text i hope it is constructive for folks that are listening in uh let's see to try to nab folks uh, who haven't participated firefighter in florida you should be with us if you had comments you wanted to get in uh feel free and then we'll get all the other folks who have a hand up as well greetings everyone uh, can I be heard? 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, this is uh, what I think is a very significant uh, part of the book because it starts to the transforming uh, period uh, from uh, Malcolm Little, Detroit Red, Satan, uh, to uh, Malcolm X, to uh, ultimately becoming Malcolm X. Uh, the book is so, the reason why the book, a lot of people are witness to saying that it helped transform their understanding of things, uh, because it did, at the same time as you were reading uh, on how Malcolm, as he was speaking to Alex Haley, on how he trans—he was hugely transforming. The reader also becomes transformed because, from my studies on, I, I, I actually knew got got to know Malcolm X before I got to know the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And then when I read the book, uh, uh, what's the name of the book that that Honorable Elijah Muhammad wrote? Uh, Message to the Black Man. Then I start, I say, oh, now I see where Malcolm got his, his basis from. And, and uh, this man was brilliant. Uh, I think I've heard Mr. Fuller speak about him also. And it's always, always been in a, in a very positive way. Because he, like Mr. Fuller, thought in terms of, of codification. Uh, and, and, you know, using logic and codification. It just in uh, Mr. Muhammad's way of doing things, he used as a base a religion, the religion of Islam, uh, to, to uh, catapult uh, his uh, uh, process, his, his understanding of logic and his understanding of codification. And this is, but and as I mentioned, this is the beginning of this process with with uh, Malcolm Little, uh, Detroit Red, Satan in this process. Uh, by this time, from our understanding of the book, all of his siblings had already joined the Nation of Islam. Every last one of them, far by far, I know I could be wrong, but I knew most. I definitely know most of them did, if not all. Including his, uh, the eldest, uh, Ella. And, uh, so he had a, automatically he had a support group. You know, I mean, similar to what, uh, is, uh, is happening from, you have this, uh, kind of attachment with anybody in the city who, who wants to, uh, get together and exchange views. Well, not a mess had that. <laughs> was waiting on him when he came out of prison. And uh, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll uh, uh, shut up now and then uh, listen to somebody else. Uh, I think we had one other person who hadn't been able to share yet. Uh, the caller, uh, your line should be open as well, Osiris. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to comment on um, the fact that, <clears throat> I don't know, a couple of things I want to comment on, but 
the fact that the nation of Islam, of course, they, you know, they got their uh, message across, their teachings across through, I guess, religion. But the fact that um, their, you know, the followers kind of understood the concept, I guess, of the white man being the, you know, so-called devil, and uh, and the fact that they kind of, you know, took that upon themselves and. I guess believe those teachings to a certain degree, and it's. I'm just kind of curious how, you know, black people and non-white people can kind of get that point across to the significant majority of uh, non-white people that the white man or white people are generally they're racist that they they practice racist uh, white supremacy. We always are looking for that that good white person that. Um, that uh that white savior uh we're looking for white acceptance but that we need to be getting the point across to people so that they can understand the uh the system of white supremacy that being white is being racist and we need to all buy into that concept and it's kind of hard and i'm just trying to see where uh malcolm x i guess he was able to uh buy into that concept and really really think about it Due to the fact, I don't know, did it take some type of trauma in his life to where he was uh, kind of at a low point in his life to where he was in prison? He really didn't have all the, most of the distractions that people in uh, society that are not locked up uh, had to offer. So, you know, he's not going around, you know, working his nine to five, going to movies, dating, doing all that stuff. Did it take him, you know, some type of, some type of trauma, some type of uh, situation where he hit, I guess, um, rock bottom to where he bought into the concept that, okay, man, let me look at, let me look into all the white people that I've come across through my life to understand that, man, maybe they are the devil or maybe they are racist, uh, white, white supremacist. So it's just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just, playing with that fact that uh how again nation of islam have they teach they used to teach that hey i don't know if they still teach that that the white man is the devil and how uh malcolm x actually received that word and kind of said okay wow um that makes sense to me that's logical to me that they you know say that the white man is the devil but that's all i had to share thank you appreciate that um I uh, can only take this moment. All the other folks who have a hand up, uh, feel free if, if you uh, dialed in and you would like to participate. You should get your hand up now as opposed to uh, lollygagging. Man, it would have been wonderful. Uh, white man, white woman, white child uh, or the devil, because uh, that is, uh, in my opinion, that is a, a huge error, a huge void uh, in the way that most of the time we talk about white supremacy, racism, uh, just focusing on uh, white men. I think even this week I heard white male patriarchy or, or white male supremacy, and that that is simply not what it is. Uh, you could not have a system of white supremacy without Sophia. Uh, if I'm, memory serves, even from this text, uh, it was a white woman uh, or white women who were integral uh, in his mom, uh, Louise Little, being institutionalized. They cannot be left out of the equation, but absolutely appreciate the uh, the commentary as well. Um, I think we had one other person who uh, has not had uh, opportunity to speak yet, and then I'll get the other folks. The caller at uh, 
give me uh work a little bit to find uh the number oh i think i got it uh the caller at uh, nine three five seven do you have something you want to share nine three five seven uh good evening everybody um can i may have you heard yes sir um yeah i just wanted to uh touch on um when uh malcolm was talking about uh his his uh friend that was in a prison with him, Bimby. Mm. And um, I just want to reiterate again, um, what, what's always discussed about uh, reading is more important than watching TV. And um, it's just, it's just, it's even brought, it's, it's brought to light more, you know, showing here that uh, how Malcolm was saying that this man, he was able to, to command respect and, and attention just with his words. And, uh, you know, it's just just to highlight that again that reading, reading and writing is more important than watching TV. Um, um, also, uh, uh, earlier in the book, uh, like I think the first study session, I, I think I remember Malcolm saying that um, he didn't really like math. Uh, I may be mistaken on this, but I, I, in my head, that's that's what I remember. He said he didn't like math because it was only like one definite answer, but I. The, when I'm listening to the the all the study sessions now, um, I'm seeing how math uh, has been become like a vital a vital asset in his life uh, because you know him running to the numbers and and all the things that he's uh, he's been engaged in and even when he was talking about Jackie Robinson, he was saying uh, how he could he could uh, uh, re re restat his batting average you know just listening through the radio or uh, however it was he was getting the information and. Uh, I think that also reflects too how um, the 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 way that we should be counter racist. Uh, Gus always talks about being logical, you know, and, and, and I'm looking at like we shouldn't deal with this problem of how to solve this problem being emotional, but being logical. And, and being logical is like a a a a math based you know, like academic study, you know, like just being logical. If A equals B, then C, you know what I'm saying? And if we stay with that approach, uh, I think that, that we, we can, we can solve this problem to, uh, white supremacy, racism. Um, I also wanted to touch on, uh, when, when he started talking about, uh, his brother came and told him that, that, white people were the devil and, you know, that they were evil. I was thinking about earlier when, or earlier in the study sessions when we were talking about how um, white people study this book, how, how they've read this autobiography in classes and, and you know, like, this, 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 this has been in their education. Um, I, wonder, I was wondering how did they feel when they finally got to this part, like hearing that, you know, uh, his take on them were that they were the devil and uh, – I was also thinking, like, since there are so many different versions of this autobiography, you know, not not just uh, this recording, but you know, however it came about, did they? Do you guys think that they omitted, you know, like they omitted certain uh, subjects, like the, the, depending on the who, the professor or the teacher's discrepancy, you know, like they're like, you know, we're not gonna cover this, or I'm not gonna expose this to my students uh, and, and things like that. But um, yeah, those are just a couple of observations that. Uh, that I thought about, you know, just like like I said, and and how how it's been said, reading is more important than t- watching TV. Um, I just want to say thank you for for that 
information, you know, because right now uh, I decided to read a book called The Gentle, the Gentle Art of uh, Verbal Self-Defense. And uh, me reading it, this book was written in 1984, uh, 1982, I'm sorry, 1982 by uh, this uh, renowned uh, psycho, family psychotherapist lady. And so, so I went back, you know, I wikipedia and, and did some research, and I'm just seeing how white people is on their game. Like, they, they've been on their game for decades, you know, like since the early 1900s, writing and reading books and just studying, studying people, you know, and like for me to pick up this book that I picked up from a yard sale, you know, um, and the reason why I started writing, uh, reading it is because my brother, he seen it in my garage. It was like on top of a shelf and he was like, oh, how's that book? And, you know, like I'm embarrassed because I was like, dang, I ain't never even read it. Like I just bought it for 10 cents at a yard sale. And so that, uh, you know, got me to start reading it. And as I start reading it, you know, it's like it's discussing how uh, people's personalities, uh, you know, how they'll attack you with words. But me reading this, you know, it, it, it just it, it gives you an insight on how to uh, rebuttal or how to approach those situations when somebody's uh, verbally attacking you, you know. And um, it is fulfilling because, you know, you watch TV and TV's not fulfilling um, because that's why you watch another episode and you watch it, but you're never gaining anything. But reading, when you're uh, getting this information, like as Malcolm was doing, he said he was just picking up books. And at one point it was aimlessly, but then he started being methodical. He started being logical with the choices that he was making. What books am I going to read? And, you know, me picking up this book, I just want to thank Gus and thank uh, uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing um, and uh, Neely Fuller. Uh, you know, it's just like reading is more important and in the first 17 pages of this book that I've read, I've learned so much that, you know, that, that I know will help me. I see it on my job. Uh, when people are talking to me, like, okay, this is what you're doing, you know. Uh, but those are the things I just wanted to share. Uh, uh, I'm grateful uh, for this study session. And um, like I said, reading is more important than TV, uh, shown by Bimby and, uh, and uh, Malcolm X. Uh, I'll mute my line now. Thank you. Uh, I think we got everybody who had not shared. Uh, appreciate that, sir. Um, all the other folks who had a hand up who are with us, uh, your line should be open. Uh, feel free to chime in. I did want to make sure I got it. And I think this is the second major autobiography that we've done from a black person uh, where a significant part of their experience was uh, time behind uh, in greater confinement. Uh, Madiba, Nelson Mandela and Minister Malcolm X. But everybody else who's with us, line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, thank you for choosing this book. Um, it's very important. Um, when the white prison guards were calling Malcolm Satan, I think they were projecting who they were on him. Um, this chapter is the most important chapter, I think, of the book and the one that whites most feel threatened about. Uh, Malcolm calls out um, white people for who they really are and tells us who we really are, um, and that, you know, he also points out the men, uh, white man's devilish ways. He calls out racism as being the white man's religion. He exposes white masonry and satanic ways, which is huge, um, especially when this book was written, um, and it's probably why he was assassinated. Um, this chapter is so powerful um, that I think it can help to wake up a lot of people because that's what it did for me. It helped me to wake up and really kind of see what was really going on and how I was a victim, uh, how I was a, um, um, a victim of uh, racism, white supremacy. Um, 
this chapter also made me take um, my own mental inventory of all the so-called, quote-unquote, good white people throughout my life. And I also came up with the same conclusion as Malcolm. I, I really honestly couldn't come up with not one true good white person throughout my life. And that made a, a big impact on me. And um, I think that's, um, you know, I think that's really important to be, um, to acknowledge that history um, and, you know, go forth and be codified. But that's all I want to say thank you yes ma'am uh any of the other folks on the line who hadn't shared yet during the second session have anything they want to get in oh uh let's go mr demery before i couldn't distinguish the other voice mr demery for and then okay. we'll get the other caller sir okay i'll be pretty quick um i just wanted to add that uh you know i'm at the age where i was alive when uh, uh, Malcolm X was alive and uh, at <clears> the <throat> same time uh, MLK and you know my family and friends were basically uh, you know followers of uh, Martin Luther King and then we were you know persuaded that uh, Minister Malcolm X was <clears throat> I would say you know, someone that you didn't want to emulate or to listen to because during that time, uh, the exact thing that he was saying, you know, we were brainwashed Negroes and we were uh, accepting the image that the white man had given us about our, ourselves. We did not know our true selves, our last names, and from which we had come. But then, you know, listen to this chapter and all the truth that Reginald was uh, laying out to his brother, you know, it, it, it just seems so logical now, you know, to be in the place where I am now and to hear that being spoken, you know, as opposed to you know, being a, a young boy and being influenced by what others thought about this individual. But uh, I think it's been a, you know, his life can actually be a focus point for a lot of people, you know, because um, he had a keen understanding of the way things were and uh, he may have uh, not understood completely the entire system of white supremacy, but he was light years of ahead of millions, you know. And uh, I'd like to thank you for choosing this book. And uh, like everyone else has said, uh, it's, you know, a cause for reflection. And uh, I'll leave my line on that. Thanks. Yeah, have you heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I remembered what I wanted to say in the last session. And I, and I just hate to beat, I just hate to keep, you know, belabor this point. But 
there really is a different phenotype to white people, you know, it's just, I mean, he said it, he said it, you know, the, the, the man in the bar with Sophia and her sister, he turned red and they turned white, you know, and that whiteness is just an absence of melanin, normal melanin, but that redness is another type of melanin. It's an aberration and it, and it's very aggressive and very hostile. And that phenotype, you can clearly see it in Chris Kyle. You know, that redness, you can see it in, what is his name, um, Darren Wilson. It's the same exact phenotype. Whenever you get those white people who are really, really hostile, you will see that phenotype if you start looking for it. Because the white is it, just, it, it, it says a lack. And, Anybody can dominate that, the red or the black. You can dominate the white people who have a lack. Okay, that was the thing I was going to say. Just pay attention to the phenotypes and just get used to, to noticing them. Like you can notice just different types of snow and things. Um, and, um, oh, yeah, I was just shocked when they said he went to jail and he was 21. He just made groan. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. He just made, I mean, his bones, his bones just stopped growing. I mean, he just made an adult when he went to jail. And no wonder his behavior was all over the place. He was a growing, you know, adolescent, mostly grown, non-rational human being. And drugs on top of that, his behavior had to be off the charts. I mean, he was not even grown. So, I mean, that that's another thing. It's just, yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, of course. I mean, of course he wouldn't make sense. He wasn't grown yet. Um, and the other thing is that contributed to him being able to have that transformation when he did. When he, he became grown. You know, he just, he just, he, I mean, he stopped growing except, you know, density and stuff. But the other one, he was still. I mean, we all say it we're on the plantation. We never have a moment to think. We can never think. It's always like the, the hamster on the on the little rolly treadmill. We never, never, we never think. And I mean, these are complex things, and they take thought, and they they take stillness. You know, and that's why you see so many people. Some people come out of jail and they're, they're vastly changed. I mean, they're so cerebral, and the others are just you know they're toast. But it's the being still. It's not having to be on the the um, the slave treadmill for a few minutes that allows you to make that real cognitive leap and figure out actually what's going on. So that was it. Copy her. Yes, sir. I'm Thomas Smith from New York again. Um. Um, quickly, I just, uh, man, this, this chapter is, uh, very powerful, like, um, it's already been commented on. And I think that, um, you know, um, Malcolm X and, um, you know, he was the orator, but the, the concepts that Malcolm, uh, Elijah Muhammad came up with was just so, was just so compelling, um, to the fact where I think that the, the whole movement, so all the movements of black people in a, in, in a state of consciousness who understand that, you know, there's a problem. There's um that you know history's been stolen. Uh, white people are, um you know the white supremacy is alive and well. You know that this this doctrine from Elijah Muhammad was the 
the spark of all that, you know, from that came the melanin and all the Egyptology and all of that to find, you know, who our true origin, what our true origins really was, as opposed to being just a slave with the slave master name. And, you know, I just think that, um, you know, um, I wish that he was treated the same way in history as Malcolm X is, you know, um, even though they don't, you know, they're kind of trying to whitewash Malcolm X, but, and he never got the same, you know, treatment, you know, the treatment I feel felt he deserved, but, you know, for Elijah Muhammad not to be acknowledged at all, I mean, he sparked the, you know, he, he put out an example um, as far as with the nation of Islam, whether you agree with it or not. I mean, you saw po positive images of black men dressed, you know, disciplined and, and um, you know, fully aware that the white people are our enemy and willing to defend our people. I mean, it was it was so powerful, you know. Um, it, it, you know, of course, you know, I think it's been kind of, um, you know, whitewashed over the years, you know, with, with Farrakhan. But, I mean, it's just, to me, um, to, to hear this story with Yakub, I mean, it's like the myth of, the mythology version of the Francis Crest Wellman theory. I mean, you know, these people are lesser than us, you know, they, 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 they're weak, you know, we created them, you know, she always says, we're the mothers and fathers of civilization. I mean, this, you know, we're, you know, these are our children, you know, essentially, you know, um, and I just, you know, wanted to add that, that this, this doctrine that, you know, I think they're going to get more into the next, you know, next week is just, you know, the, the basis of, I think the whole counter racist movement, Today, even, I mean, it's, it's just first time saying that the white man is the devil, that they can't be trusted, that, you know, we need to stay away from these people, you know. I mean, it, it just, I don't think that we, we understand how powerful that was, you know. That's all I wanted to add. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, um, yeah. I um, wanted to say that um, someone was making a, um, reference to how um, maybe um, whites perceive this autobiography of Malcolm X, and um, it's not one that's um, banned from even white schools. Uh, there's a phrase that goes, if you want to understand what Betty buys, you have to see Betty through Betty's eyes. Um, white people have a obviously different contextual history than blacks, Africans, non-whites. And um, what I have um, noted uh, in the um, systems and situations wherein um, whites talk about this autobiography is the emphasis is placed on his um, relationships with the white female in a way as to... to um, if not directly suggest, but to, um, you know, insinuate or imply, uh, again, the, um, you know, the, well, uh, obviously it is, um, to say, art imitating life, imitating art, such that it is manifest in the behavior of black men and, and today, I guess, to a lesser extent, uh, black females. But they that part is emphasized, the sexual dynamics not of white women wanting black men or seeing us as a, um, you know, as chocolate personified, you know, but as that 
beastly, you know, animalistic, sexual um, uh, male, black male that's always salivating for the white female. That's um, what, you know, so in my experience in terms of what they uh, want to emphasize and note however subtly they might do it. And, um, and of course, um, the, um, the, the drug use. Um, in regards to um, Elijah Muhammad, um, I, I think that we um, would um, be wise to kind of like know a little more about the entire history, not just some of the things that we may uh, be inclined to um, romanticize, which is not to say that for fourth grade education, contributions weren't made, but um, uh, the Nation of Islam was never um, as uh, threatening to uh, whites as the uh, Black Panthers. Um, that's that's my opinion, and of course, you know, others may be welcome to disagree. But um, and also in the um, prison system, a person who, um, uh, even though today in many of them, um, you know, people, uh, you know, being Muslims. Uh, black males being Muslims is kind of frowned upon, and I think that I recall statements to the effect that when um, they want to, um, when other religious leaders are given um, preference or um, you know pass visits pass to uh, whole classes or do things with people in prisons that they the same courtesy is not not to the same extent extended. To um, those who are considered to be, um, you know, um, nationalistic, um, but uh, I'm saying that in the same vein to say that for um, Malcolm to have been in Massachusetts at that time, um, that environment, and to be taken on religion, um, whites don't generally frown upon black people uh, taking on religious uh, beliefs. Um, and don't find them necessarily as threatening uh, as we might think that they might um, see them, um, especially if a person's in um, in prison and you're praying. That's a lot less um, threatening um, to them. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to um, to know. And also, you know, as far as what more, um, the the ideology. Um, it's you know Elijah Poole, um Elijah Muhammad, um, and his background comes from a lot from Marcus Garvey, et cetera. Oftentimes, just like someone else mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the uh, history about our own people we just didn't know. It's not that we didn't have. And I don't want to use the term militant. Let me think of another term. We don't have as nationalistic, pan-Africanistic, or pro-black. Um, we didn't know about a lot of those leaders because we were brainwashed if we got any information at all. So it's not to say that we did not have um, leaders before uh, Elijah Muhammad, even though um, I believe um, the newspaper, well, just like the Black Panthers, I think I don't know which one of them ended up having the most circulation, but I do recall reading at one point in time that um, Muhammad Speaks, I think that was the name of it, as well as the Black Panther Speaks, they were at one point in time selling more daily papers 
than any other daily in the United States. So I don't want to negate their positiveness, but I think that we need to be um, advised to look at all of the historical context of the situation and not kind of just romanticize it. Uh, I will get in quickly uh, before we wrap up. Uh, number one, uh, that prison environment. He talked about the radio and listening to uh, baseball games so you could hear what Jackie Robinson was doing. Uh, I'm reminded of some of the programs, uh, specifically the program we did this past summer uh, with Mr. Yusuf uh, Hawkins, black male. He was in greater confinement in Pennsylvania. And just, I'd heard this before, but just talking about the importance of having uh, distractions. Uh, Now they got television uh, in a lot of prisons and and even cable uh, in some instances uh, and just different things to to have you distracted to where you do not have that time to sit and reflect and think and learn uh, and, and make an analysis of your existence and how you ended up here and perhaps even to get a better understanding of white supremacy, racism uh, that I just heard from a lot of inmates and all the sexual deviance that goes on and the drugs uh, that they allow uh, into the uh, environments of greater confinement, AKA prison uh, that I think they do a lot to disrupt that so that you don't have people uh, who end up transforming themselves, rehabilitation as they call it, so that that process doesn't happen. Uh, I even heard that this week, uh, the story that they were talking about up in Attica, where uh, this is a business model that is based on, we will make the most profits by having these people uh, just go out and come right back to us uh, on another crime so we can lock them up for another 10, 50 years. I think Dr. Cambon calls that system uh, white welfare. Uh, Also, he has, uh, this, this is chapter 10 where he says, uh, there was a legal limit to how much time one could be kept in solitary confinement. Uh, I think there have been a lot of cases uh, over the last six months uh, with black people in particular being kept in solitary confinement for astronomical uh, amounts of time where that just does not seem to be getting enforced at all. Even juveniles, uh, folks that are uh, under the age of 18 uh, being placed in solitary confinement and them even making some Uh, at least giving the pretense that they are going to uh, try to change this policy. But that stood out uh, when he talked about that uh, in chapter 10. Uh, Also, uh, when he talks about uh, Bimby, um, man, just read that portion. Uh, I I will have to confess, I do get a little bit tired of having to say consistently on the program that this is G-rated, that we do not curse on the program. Uh, that you can come out and say whatever you need to say about the system of white supremacy, whites directly, uh, that you can be as intense as you need to be uh, in describing uh, all of the profane things that whites do, and you do not have to drop one single curse word. Uh, I think Minister Malcolm, excellent illustration. Dr. Cambon, uh, I was even thinking, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard him curse uh, on the air or even the many times that I've talked to him privately. Um, I have heard just the full of curse, but most of the time when he's on the air, he's G rated, uh, just that passage, uh, I think where he said, uh, the first audio segment where he was talking about when he first, uh, went to Boston, he was staying with Ella that he said he maybe had 200 words in his working vocabulary. 
uh, at that time and certainly wasn't reading, wasn't doing any studying. Uh, the portion in chapter 10 where he says uh, he's talking about Bimbi, uh, that he would have a cluster of people riveted often on odd subjects you never would think of. He would prove to us, dipping into the science of human behavior, that the only difference between us and outside people was that we had been caught. That even reminded me of Mr. Fuller saying that the entire system of white supremacy is a prison. You just have people who are in greater confinement. Uh, he liked to talk about historical events and figures when he talked about the history of Concord, where I was to be transferred later. You would have thought he was hired by the Chamber of Commerce and I wasn't the first inmate who had never heard of Thoreau until Bimby expounded upon him. Bimby was known as the library's best customer. What fascinated me most with him, what fascinated me with him most of all was that he was the first man I had ever seen command total respect with his words. Bimby seldom said much to me. He was gruff to individuals, but I sensed he liked me. What made me seek his friendship was when I heard him discuss religion. I considered myself beyond atheism. I was Satan, but Bimby put the atheist philosophy in a framework, so to speak, that ended my vicious cursing attacks. My approach sounded so weak alongside his, and he never used a foul word super appreciative and words are going to be uh even greater factor as we continue with this transformation uh next week i suspect for the remainder of the book but uh just man to emphasize that uh and i mean that's i think even a big appeal with the nation of islam where people are talking about uh the impact and cleaning up uh individuals who were involved in all sorts of degenerate behaviors and now they're out and they're doing constructive things they're well dressed they carry themselves uh in a manner with some dignity and some black self-respect uh and you just all that profanity and what have you uh and really trying to get rid of that that's something that i've said consistently uh whether i'm on the air or not that i, I really want to make sure that i'm doing that uh, on a regular basis and just not using all that uh profanity uh what have you that you can make the strongest most intense indictment of whites without using one foul word and you have many brilliant illustrations of that we're reading one right now uh, i will reference this in the future but as i said i do get tired of having to say that on the program consistently that this is g-rated no profanity that being said um we have done our time and even compensated for the late start uh unless uh, our call in alabama unless you had something uh quick that you wanted to get in before we wrap Grand, I assume uh, he is just listening. Everybody else, I don't think we missed anybody else the second time around. Uh, again, uh, oh, yeah, 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 sorry. Okay, no, go ahead, go ahead. Call on yeah, Alabama. Did you have anything that you wanted to get in quickly? Um, well, yeah, just real quick. I think it would have been if, if they put the, the real story in of how he converted to Islam in the movie, I think it would have been more interesting. I don't know, you know, a movie is just a movie, and a movie is all it is, just a movie, you know, but to me, that's uh, a big difference. Um, the, the big difference from the fact that they didn't, they had the character Bimby as Brother Baines and acting like, you know, Brother Baines was in prison, and he converted to Islam through prison because 
to me, I, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of racism. But to me, it's saying what that, what that little scene said to me in the, in the slander and the lie of, of how he converted in the movie, it was saying that the, all the nation Islam folks, they learned about Islam in prison. You see what I'm saying? Like, none of them could have just learned about it in the free world without being convicted of a crime. But that just was my take on it. But I, I'm using my line. Thank you. Uh, as we did our time uh, to get ready to uh, wrap things up, unless uh, 9357, unless you had something uh, very uh, concise uh, to get in before we conclude. Yes, may we heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, just real quick. I wanted to say uh, thanks. Uh, that was insightful about the prison distractions. That does make sense because, you know, that's what you keep reiterating about the TV. You know, um, the more distractions that they give, the less you can be focused. And uh, thank you to the female caller. Um, for her assessment, um, that black people, when they go the religious route, that they are less threatening. And I think that ties in what I was saying about the logical thing. Like, um, I've heard that, you know, they were saying the Black Panthers were more militant than being, um, I guess, like Dr. Martin Luther King, where he, you know, it was more of a religious base, you know, spiritual. So it's like, if you keep going off the emotion, um, we, or should I say we need to be more logical than emotion. And, and a militant strategy is logical, you know, to... Uh, uh, and white supremacy racism. That's all. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, one more thing. I'm sorry. Oh, and I wanted to also tell her thank you for being insightful about the uh, the white studying habits. Uh, that was my question that I had earlier, and how they would focus more on Malcolm uh, being in relationships with the uh, white girls instead of you know them being devils. That's all. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Can I say one thing quickly? Man, <laughs> uh, I no, would rather wrap. You stuff. can do it in thirty seconds. Okay, listen, um, that book that was mentioned, um, I think by the guy who was just talking, that is an excellent book. I strongly suggest that people get it. I read it read it a long time ago. I don't know if it's even still in print, but it was very helpful to me when I read it a long time ago. Um, and there's also, okay, so I'll just say that book and other books by Deborah Tannen and people about talking, because I think that's very helpful to us. Thank you, Gus, for letting me throw that in there. Yes, ma'am. Right on. Anything else jumps out, uh, you can email it. Uh, we'll read it uh, on the air next week. Um, I guess I could uh, play less. That would give more time uh, to share. I have to balance that out as we uh, roll uh, with the study session. But glad to hear folks are uh, tuning in and, and have things to share. Uh, if you listen to the archives again, feel free. You can write your response and I'll share uh, the email. I would encourage folks to check out that uh, clip from the Schomburg. That's where we got the introduction with uh, Yuri Kochiyama's uh, granddaughter, uh, where she was speaking. They did have many other uh, folks uh, who spoke, and they had a roundtable discussion. It's online. Again, I've linked it repeatedly uh, in the study session, the description for the uh, Friday study sessions on uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. Next week, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be picking up middle of chapter 10. Uh, we should be back tomorrow with the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we should also be here on Monday uh, with, uh, interestingly enough, since he mentioned Kalamazoo, where his uh, mother, Louise Little, was uh, institutionalized. We have a black male, Dr. Lewis Walker. Uh, he worked with the Kalamazoo Police Department in Michigan, where they wanted to address how racism, white supremacy was manifest in their department. And they requested Dr. Walker, who's a black male, 
him to uh, provide some research and insight on things that they could do to uh, acknowledge their own racism and make those changes. Uh, he should be with us on Monday. Uh, be interesting if he has any thoughts on uh, Minister Malcolm and, and his time in that area. Uh, same spot, but that's Monday, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I did speak with uh, Mr. Anthony Shahid, who is also uh, a Muslim. Uh, spoke with him yesterday, uh, seeing if we can get him on the program soon. Uh, he said he was headed to Selma for the uh, march the uh, recognition of the 50 year anniversary. He has been uh, prominently, he's the black male. If you've been paying attention to what's happening in Ferguson at all with the chains and uh, the dogs, uh, he has given uh, many, many very accurate uh, commentaries on racism, white supremacy and what's happening to black people in Ferguson worldwide. But uh, looking to have him on the program uh, soon as well. Uh, with that, if you have any confusion, feel free, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. Com. Uh, you can hit us on Twitter as well at until justice. Uh, thanks everyone for contributing, listening in. Uh, we'll be back in about 24 hours. Man, this is a great illustration. I think the female called many of our callers touched on it under the system of white supremacy. Sobriety would be best. Uh, that's one thing you can do to keep a few nickels uh, out of racists pockets uh, that they will just use to further terrorize us. Uh, and one way that you can make sure you do not have any unnecessary problems, greater confinement, uh, any situations that are unnecessarily dangerous, potentially lethal, uh, coming in contact uh, with any of these suspected race soldiers. You do not want to be inebriated and in touch with a Daniel Holtzclaw, a Darren Wilson, a Daniel Pantaleo. It's just it's one of the worst possible decisions you can make to get behind the wheel uh, I would even say even as a pedestrian to be under the influence as a black person in the system of white supremacy, sobriety would be best under conditions of war, white terrorism. That being said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with our Selves. Remind us if this book has any value at all. Any black person could potentially be Malcolm Little, Louise Little, and make a massive transformation contribution to solving this problem. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self respect at all times, in all places. Each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.